Time to get dope. Where's our music? <laughs> <laughs> music malfunction. What the fuck? Welcome to Dose, everyone. We are live. Thursday, August 4th, 8.02 p.m. here in Los Angeles. It is Friday, August 5th, 11.02 a.m. in Shanghai, China, where our guest is joining us from today in the future, or tomorrow, joining us from tomorrow. Hope everyone's doing well. Listening to some Tan Weiwei, artist also picked by our guest tonight. What's up, Mike? Abby. Welcome to Dose, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this Thursday night. Late different, one. Different time than our usual show. I appreciate y'all joining us. So, did you guys think that the United States provoking World War III with Russia was a step too far? Washington says, hell no! We can risk World War III on two fronts at once. When has that ever stopped us before? That's right. Nancy Pelosi's highly provocative trip to Taiwan put us on the brink yet again for pretty much no other reason than U.S. belligerence and arrogance. In an op-ed to the Washington Post about her trip, Pelosi lambasted the Chinese Communist Party and wrote, <laughs> wrote quote, America's solidarity with the 23 million people of Taiwan is more important today than ever as the world faces a choice between autocracy and democracy. Huh. Interesting choice of words there. This controversial delegation was no doubt approved by the White House and Democratic establishment, but was also widely supported by the huge swath of anti-China right-wingers in Congress and beyond. It's quite a perplexing maneuver, considering that this country is reeling from so much economic anxiety. Uh, Mike, I doubt the majority of Americans have a military confrontation with China at the top of their priorities list right now. But again, when has that ever stopped the Warhawks in Washington? The visit on the heels of the U.S.-led RIMPAC war games that were set to contain China in the Pacific that I attended for Earth's Greatest Enemy represents an aggressive shift in policy, considering that Pelosi is the highest-ranking U.S. official to visit the island in 25 years years. Ever since the U.S. empire conducted the Asia pivot, 
2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0, we've been constantly bombarded with China fear-mongering and propaganda, which has been set at a fever pitch in the wake of COVID. I want to cut through some of that today. First, I want to cover the Taiwan issue, but then I want to get into a broader discussion about China from someone who lives there and who's deeply in tune with Chinese politics, culture, and so much more. So I'm very excited to be joined by Ting's Chak. She's a member of the Dongsheng News Collective, and she's a great resource on all things China, as well as a researcher with Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research. Ting's joins us now all the way from Shanghai, China. Welcome to Dost, Ting's. It's a pleasure to join you in the future. <laughs> What's it like over there? Yeah, how how is it? Has the world collapsed yet? Or? Just you wait. Just you wait. The world is sunny and bright and scorching today. So uh, the future looks good. Future looks hot. Maybe from your perspective, over here it's it's not looking so good. It's Which definitely. I think is going to be a, a theme of our discussion today. Yeah, we're living in the dystopian epicenter of Los Angeles right now. I thought Shanghai was the just so center of the world. <laughs> world class competition now. Yeah, that, that's the Orwellian, uh, you know, Huxleyan, like I guess dystopian technological future. We're in like the just the complete fucking destitution of I don't even know how to describe where we are, but it's not good things. You know, it was great to actually meet you face to face a couple months ago at the Incredible People's Summit here in Los Angeles. But you, you're back in China. Um, interestingly enough, you were born and grew up elsewhere. You've experienced a ton of different cultures, you know, a lot of anti-communist cultures actually in Hong Kong, Canada, and now back living in, Shang- in Shanghai. Tell us just about that. Like, how was that to just navigate such different landscapes uh, through your life? And what made you yeah, end up absolutely. back in Shanghai? Yeah. Um, how many hours do we have? <laughs> Because I have to go into 5,000 years of Chinese history as well, so I hope your listeners are ready for this. Um, yeah, so I'm child of the 80s, uh, born in Hong Kong, um, you know, in the moment of the pre-return of Hong Kong back to China that happened in 97. So I, I went to Canada, immigrated as a kid with my family as part of this sort of wave of, you know, really, a, I think an anti-communist wave and, and partly trying to look for... You know, at that point, the Canadian dream in Canada. So I think you're right in terms of it's a weird trajectory to come back um, to mainland and sort of get politicized or get dosed the way I did. And I would say it went through um, several rounds. I mean, grow up growing up as an immigrant in the global north and and particularly a conscientized in the post 9-11 period. You know, I saw the contradictions of what the global north or imperialism and its imperialist lackeys like Canada um, represents for the world. Um, you know, and I got active in uh, migrant justice, immigrant rights movement um, shortly thereafter. And and from then kind of reconnected with a international um, um, network of movements uh, that have an anti-imperialist analysis and anti-capitalist analysis about the world. And life brought me back and had an opportunity to come back to mainland. I never actually lived here um, and came back right at the in the midst of the pandemic when China was just emerging from that first wave and the world was really entering that dark period. So it's been pretty fascinating uh, to return to my homeland in this time. Wow. Um, where is your family in Canada still? 
I have family in in Hong Kong and Macau and and also some in Toronto. Cool. What did get you initially dosed in the world of politics and then media? I mean, I would say um, I think we're of the same generation. I, for my first week of high school in Canada was nine eleven, huh. um, and so that really defined um, my uh, politicization. That would be the first round, and then you know, in my early twenties, got into this. As I mentioned, a migrant justice organizing that was from this anti-imperialist lens. You know, it was part of my own sort of unlearning of what it means to migrate and what are some of the root causes, uh, whether uh, environmental displacement, whether it's a, a displacement due to war, displacement by economic factors, and a long history of colonialism and the legacies we live. Um, and until today. And so that was probably my second wave of um, being conscientized. And then I would say my third round was reconnecting with a kind of broader global South anti-imperialist network and movements, and of which you mentioned the beginning, Tricontinental being a kind of research institute that emerges from a global South perspective, movement perspective of, of people's struggles. And so have been working with Tricontinental for the last four years. And more recently, um, a group of us formed the Dongshan Collective, which maybe later we can talk a little bit more about. Yeah, I like that you said that your consciousness um, came in waves because that's kind of how it happens, right? And and the more that you learn, the, the deeper um, your ideology can be set in that internationalist lens and solidarity um, with other movements around the world. Talk about Dongshan because... Um, I think that you and I are kind of similar in the in the sense that we feel like media is a very important tool for education. Obviously, I think a lot of people are are highly propagandized, especially in the West, um, about countries that are deemed you know the adversaries of Europe and and you know the U.S. and its junior collaborators. So, talk about why you and others started Dongsheng because at first glance it seems. Um, it kind of seems apolitical in a sense. It's it's very wide-reaching, all-encompassing, really covers all facets of Chinese society in a, in a pretty interesting way. Yeah, sure. I mean, it just it was just around, um, I first, I guess the first thing we ever published was in May of 2020. So sort of rewind back to that moment. Um, that was really um, when uh, Wuhan was getting out of lockdown. Uh, but the world was really entering the the pandemic in a big way. Um, but during the pandemic, I think it made clear several things. One is the kind of media warfare that was really being waged um, around China being the principal enemy now, um, principal target, and a lot of misinformation and, and lack of access to what's actually happening in China, not just from a geopolitical lens, but what happens in Chinese society. Um, what do Chinese people think? Uh, what is, uh, you know, the path of development in China? And this was made pretty much inaccessible to the world. And, and a group of us um, that know each other and, and from a variety of countries, really, um, we have now members from Brazil, Argentina, from Zambia and South Africa, and a couple of us based in China. And we kind of got together. We were all news junkies and just love following the news. But you know, realize that whether it's in Sao Paulo or Buenos Aires or Johannesburg, the media, even the progressive media, the left media, was reiterating a lot of the same lines around China because there was just actually no access to information. Um, as if, you know, 
uh, we questioned the mainstream corporate media on pretty much everything, you know, the lies on, on everything, but <laughs> on China, somehow it might be correct. Uh, so we just did, we had a kind of modest proposal in the beginning. We just wanted to read the news and, and kind of digest it in a way that and present it in a, in a, in a short summary that made it more accessible to people in movements or even, you know, as you've mentioned, it's a kind of broader sector of society that's interested to learn about China. So, you know, every week in our News on China bulletin, we have uh, stories on geopolitics and national politics, of course, but also about, you know, the environment um, around agriculture, uh, science and technology, about people's life and culture. Uh, and we just summarize different articles we read that we find are interesting and put them together. And we really want to lead with facts. Uh, and you'll see in, in any digest, it's really fact-based uh, rather than really a deep analysis about what this means for, you know, anti-imperialist struggles. That's not really um, our, our sort of modus operandi. Uh, of course, we are, you know, by and large anti-imperialists and share that politics, but we really want to create a space to offer information. Um, and, and since then, we added a couple other um, uh, 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 projects. One of them is called Chinese Voices that tries to summarize some of the um, public debates happening inside China. You know, one of the, I think, great myths is to think that a country of 1.4 billion doesn't have a lot of conflicting views that are heavily debated about pretty much any topic under the sun. And so um, we have a weekly digest that brings a couple of articles of thinkers from China and that is also a broad range of analysis. Um, and then most recently, we just came out with a podcast just to do a little pitch for um, our friends in Africa on the whole China-Africa question. And so it's called The Crane. And we just, we're just we just about to launch our third um, episode um, with uh, two great hosts called Mika and Amadeus based in, in Southern Africa. It's a great snapshot on just Chinese society and everything that's going on, because, you know, even people who are following politics closely, you know, we do get it through like a virulently anti-China lens and we kind of have to dissect around that bias. But even if you are getting it from a somewhat neutral place, it tends to be just, you know, kind of one note just about the political sphere and the interactions with the West and so this is a, it's just a really kind of refreshing take on like what China is like, you know, culturally, economically, what's going on there, technological advancements that are happening there without this kind of heavy handed, <laughs> you know, language that you have to parse through when you're reading corporate news articles that even do sometimes by mistake favorably cover some some cool things that China's doing right now. So definitely recommend that. The podcast sounds very cool. Um because of course there's a, another whole misinformation campaign about, you know, Africa and Chinese relations. So that that's gonna be very interesting and I think that um I'm I'm gonna have to dive into that and check that out. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to go on that point about, you know, sometimes, you know, even the facts come through in you know, Western corporate media. As you'll see when we um, do our digest, we have we don't just cite sort of official state media from China. You know, it's we, we have sometimes we have New York Times or, you know, we have um, uh, from The Economist even, you know, if they bring in the facts, we just highlight the facts of what's happening. And I mean, just on the kind of... Um, I think the nature of your show called Dosed, I mean, we just, in the process of researching every week, there's just tons of things to be curious about. I mean, almost regardless of your political stripes, 
Um, I, our hope for Dongsheng is like a kind of invitation to just stay curious. It would be, I think, a shame to just fall into this trap about this medium mis- disinformation and dehumanization to think that there's nothing good or interesting that can be learned from a country that's changing so rapidly. And uh, I just wanted to bring a couple of the things, you know, we learned like, it's so cool to follow the electric vehicle development, you know, and learn that, oh, 99% of the world's electric buses are in China, or 80% of the world's solar panels are are, are created here. Or last year, you know, um, there was a historic landing on the dark side of the moon and all the space exploration that's happening, or even just what people are doing, like young people here, especially in the cities, like are are now a part of this revival of wearing what we call hanfu, which is like traditional Chinese gowns, and you'll like ride the subway, or, you know, be at a restaurant and people are wearing these traditional clothes, and it's fantastic to see. I mean, this is just the kinds of aspects of a fuller Chinese society and a sort of fuller humanity that I think um, it's a shame to not provide some access to for the rest of the world. Wait, let's go back to the dark side of the moon thing. Why the hell has that <laughs> not like happened that yet? <laughs> Why has yeah, that not happened yet? What What's the deal with that? Wasn't there also some like trying to grow stuff on the dark side of the moon? Did I, met, did I make that up? I feel like that was part of the mission. Uh, yeah, part of it is to look into it. I don't think anything has been grown yet, but really, <laughs> given there's no sun, security yeah. is a big issue intergalactically. Um, you know, I, I instead of kind of forcing you to explain this huge historical analysis about Taiwan, um, which I'm sure that you can do very well, but I just don't want it to bog down the rest of this really interesting discussion. And I, and I, I think that Breakthrough News did a really succinct, it's four minutes, so it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a doozy, but I think it really summarizes the situation perfectly well. And then I kind of want to expand on just a couple points with you, Tings. Um, and, you know, let's play this really quick because I think it's it, it really knocks out a lot of the core facts before we can kind of discuss the issue more and then move on um, to some cooler stuff here. So let's check it out. Nancy Pelosi is set to visit Taiwan during her Asia tour, a visit which some people are saying might trigger World War III. Chinese President Xi Jinping warned the United States that this Taiwan visit was akin to playing with fire. The Chinese military made a post on Chinese social media, quote, preparing for war, a post which racked up 300,000 likes in 12 hours. Why is Pelosi's visit such a big deal? What's so contentious about Taiwan? To answer these questions, we're going to need to go over some basic history. Taiwan has been a part of China for centuries. People from the Chinese mainland sailed across the Taiwan Strait as early as the 12th century. For a while, Taiwan was part of Fujian province, the mainland province closest to Taiwan, before becoming its own Chinese province in 1886. In 1895, China loses the Sino-Japanese War and is forced to turn over Taiwan to the Japanese Empire. Taiwan exists as a Japanese colony called Formosa for the next 50 years until the collapse of the Japanese Empire in 1945 at the end of World War II. Taiwan was said to return to China, but at the time, China itself lacked a unified government. There was a civil war in China between the Chinese nationalists, led by Chiang Kai-shek, and the Chinese communists, led by Mao Zedong. When Chiang Kai-shek loses, his nationalist forces retreat from the mainland and set themselves up in Taiwan. This is when the Taiwan issue begins. Unwilling to accept that they lost the war, Chiang Kai-shek self-declares completely ridiculously from this small island of Taiwan that he represents the real government of China, what he calls the Republic of China. At this point, the Communist Party controls all of mainland China where 540 million people live. 
To any rational person, regardless of ideology, it's obvious that this is the new government. But the United States, eager to undermine communism, goes along with this absurd claim and backs up Chiang Kai-shek and refuses to recognize the new communist government. The U.S. then uses its superpower status to coerce other countries into recognizing Taiwan and even gave Taiwan China's seat at the U.N. Security Council instead of the actual government in Beijing. This would be like if the Confederacy, after losing their secessionist war, decided that instead of surrendering and re-entering the Union, they would retreat all their forces to an island off of Florida and declare themselves the new seat of the U.S. government and then have all their pro-Confederate allies like Britain send diplomats and weapons to them and refuse to recognize Washington DC. Do you think people here would accept that? But the most egregious part of all of this is that the United States abandoned this absurd position and signed an agreement saying so in 1972. The Shanghai Communique, the treaty that ends over 20 years of severed diplomatic ties between the US and China, recognizes that Taiwan is part of China. This was such a core issue that there was no scenario under which China would have agreed to reopening diplomatic relations without the U.S. recognizing this basic aspect of China's sovereignty. And the thing is, even the nationalists in Taiwan recognize that Taiwan is part of China. So is China overreacting to Nancy Pelosi's trip? Ever since 1979, no U.S. head of state and no leader of the ruling party has ever visited Taiwan. No Taiwanese leader has come to Washington in decades either. So at a time when U.S.-China relations are the tensest they've been in decades, for the U.S. to send a third-ranking political leader to Taiwan, likely to meet with leaders of the government they don't formally recognize in defiance of the government they do recognize, is going to be seen as breaking their own treaty. China's calling it a strategic-level provocation. This is not some minor issue to them. So why is the U.S. doing this? It's because the rise of China threatens the U.S.'s status as the sole world empire. They want to weaken, intimidate, or as crazy as it sounds, overthrow the Chinese government. It's part of a larger strategy of great power conflict, which is to step-by-step put China under total pressure, with tariffs, sanctions, bringing huge amounts of U.S. naval power around the mainland, instigating separatist movements, and political instability. The U.S. isn't seeking a head-on confrontation with the enormous Chinese military, but these sorts of measures climb the escalation ladder, which make an accident that could trigger something like that all the more likely. So the question for us is, who exactly asked Nancy Pelosi to do this? Where are the droves of people clamoring for the U.S. to incite war against China? Nancy Pelosi tried to justify her trip, saying it's about security. But if Congress really cared about security, they would be addressing inflation, healthcare, or climate change instead of dragging us into World War III. Boom. That was Kay Pritzker from Breakthrough News. You guys should check it out. Tings, what did you think? What are your reactions to that clip? And anything to fill in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Kay did an amazing job. Best four minutes um, ever spent. So he did... (laughs) my job easier. No, I mean, I think um, one of the things in terms of uh, the the provocations that have happened recently is um, one of the important to bring up is that Taiwan has actually never been, quote unquote, independent, right? You know, um, whether you look back historically um, uh, for hundreds of years, you know, he mentioned till since the 12th century, at least there's been huge waves of migration and interaction with the Chinese mainland and, and culturally, politically, administratively has been in, integrated into China as, as one country. Um, 
And at the same time, I mean, what's interesting about Pelosi's trip is it's actually a violation of international law and bilateral agreements, you know, by trying to assert this kind of um, uh, aggression, really. I mean, there's no international treaty that recognizes Taiwan as an independent country. And no Taiwanese government has ever declared independence. And, and in fact, the constitution of Taiwan itself is a you know pro-unification one. So this is quite interesting that sort of this unilateral act of aggression is happening now when it, it, it actually has no basis for it, both uh, from the Chinese perspective on both sides of the straits and from an international perspective. Yeah, I did see people from both sides, I mean, in Taiwan and mainland China actually like protesting Pelosi and kind of denouncing this provocation because I'm sure, you know, they just feel like they're being used as pawns. I mean, essentially, Mm -hmm. and that's what I think uh, probably a lot of people do around the world (laughs) when the U.S. is involved in provoking these situations. One thing I thought was missing from the clip is all of this talk about Taiwan being a democracy in stark contrast from China is that Taiwan was actually a dictatorship under martial law until relatively recently. I mean, 1987, that's pretty recent. Um, This dictatorship was so repressive that even dancing was illegal. Uh, Police would go around... That's dancing. Dancing. (laughs) D-A-N-C-I-N-G. Dancing. Um, And what's amazing is that this didn't end until a decade after the U.S. created the Taiwan Relations Act... That was created under the pretext that Taiwan was already a democracy. So very interesting there. It kind of reminds me of, you know, South Korea, um, the whole lifting up South Korea as, as this bastion of democracy when there was a repressive dictatorship as well for a very long time that the U.S. was staunch allies with. So it's just interesting that, that you know, Pelosi negated to mention this pretty interesting fact when she touted um, this treaty. Um, so I guess just give a little more insight on that. And also like you were talking to me earlier about like the reunification and kind of the symbolic nature of that effort, um, on behalf of China when it comes to Taiwan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the great myths and, and, and sort of selective histories of telling, um, you know, what it means to create, uh, a bastion for democracy or a symbol of democracy as a foil to the sort of big, bad communist um, PRC on the other side of the straits, right? And Taiwan has been very much a pawn, or a pawn and um, and uh, a, cre- a creation, a myth, really, in that sense. So you already mentioned, you know, the decades of repressive dictatorship under martial law, first under Chiang Kai-shek, and then later, you know, the baton was um, passed over to his son, uh, Jiang Jingguo, uh, after his death. And also the, the KMT government in the early years oversaw one of the most violent and bloody massacres um, in 1947, February of that year, uh, when protesters were challenging the repressive nature of the KMT government um, uh, shortly after uh, the hand over back um, and after the Japanese defeat. Um, and, and I think one of the things as well, it's important to recognize why this is a symbolic uh, an emotional question for the Chinese people, and this is, I would say, on both sides of the straits, um, is it's part of a 200-year-long a process of trying to unite a uh, country against imperialism. Because we have to remember that um, Taiwan was ceded to the Japanese Empire after the Sino-Japanese uh, Sino, um, War 
1895. And for the next 50 years, until Japan and fascism was defeated in World War II, um, uh, Taiwan was under, uh, was ceded uh, and was under Japanese occupation. Um, and in fact, one of the things that came out after like the Potsdam Conference end of World War II, when this, what's called the Cairo Declaration, is that all territories that were stolen by Japan, that includes at the time Taiwan was called Formosa, and other regions like Manchuria, must be restored to China. So this has been a kind of consensus in the post-war period. But at the same time, I think one of the other aspects in terms of the U.S. and how it's used um, uh, Taiwan for its imperialist interests is that it was a de facto military base of of the U.S. for many years. I mean, during the 70s, before the um, uh, the, the reestablishment of uh, diplomatic relations between the PRC and, and the U.S., Japan, I mean, um, uh, Taiwan had up to 30,000 U.S. troops on the island. Wow. Um, there were the U.S. had nuclear arms pointing towards China. I mean, it was a de facto base uh, and 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 we can't forget that part. So it's part of this 200 year long history of how the island has been subject to uh, foreign intervention, uh, imperialist ambitions. And the idea of reunification is one that's 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 about, you know, the national project and and an unfinished story in that sense. So what you're saying is the U.S. can own. Taiwan. <laughs> and there's no question about that. It's just like, oh, yeah, it's just another basically just another base um, used as a launching pad for U.S. operations. That explains a lot more about why the U.S. is so invested, um, aside from, of course, just using it as as a wedge uh, to just dig in their heels more against China. Um, Mike, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I guess, of course, there's that, that reason that China wants to uh, reunify Taiwan um, from just a military strategic perspective of that being the uh, point at which the U.S. and, you know, kind of very openly is saying that it wants to do to use Taiwan to undermine and overthrow, destabilize China. Um, but then, you know, you're also mentioning that there's this also uh, emotional significance. And, you know, when we really think about I mean, obviously we can't get into the entire long uh you know, 4,000 year or longer history of China. But, you know, there's a lot of the, the recent history and in, in in not just the modern era, but it's, it's you know, back through the 1700s, 1800s. You know, it's a very painful history. You had the, the British imposing the opium wars and kind of forcing uh, drugs on the population uh, for its own profit. Um, then you have the uh, occupation by the Japanese empire, which, you know, if, if no one has learned about what it was like under Japanese occupation, it's it's extremely horrifying and brutal. I mean, it's it's really hard to overstate that. Um, and then after the... I just want to interject yeah, there for ahead. a second because I think the World War II history is so... Um, and, and the way that it's the hegemonic way of, of counting, uh, that counting that history forgets the amount of lives that were lost in, mm-hmm. in the Asia front, right? In China, there were 20 million people who died... Um, fighting, resisting Japanese fascism, you know, this is not at all told. It seems like, you know, the U.S. enters in the last, last moment and wins, you know, um, the Second World War. But, you know, we we don't usually mention the 27 million Soviet lives and lesser even the 20 million Chinese lives. Wow. That's that's more. I did not know that. That is a lot. Amazing. Um, 
Yeah, and then after that, and then after that, and not just life under Japanese rule, but then the war, which they lost 20 million people. Um, then there's this this civil war, and civil wars are horrible for for every society. And they lost a lot in the civil war, and they were fighting these, you know, the nationalist forces led by Chiang Kai Shek, which were right wing and and fascist forces. Um, you know, and so that this is there's just like all these so like the symbolism and this the of of reunifying the country that was torn apart by these different really painful um, and humiliating eras. I mean, I think that that's something that um, you know Americans can try to should try to understand and empathize with. I think I don't know. So, is there anything more about that that angle that you think is important for people to know? I mean, I think that's. Uh... This is why also I think the why foreign policy, the foreign policy of China is so defined by this idea of non-interference and territorial sovereignty, which is fundamental since the era of the 1950s under, you know, the great imperialist, uh, imperialist or internationalist um, premier Zhou Enlai, right? Because this idea of, you know, the Bandung Conference, the five principles of, of, of peaceful coexistence is because... Um, China's history in the last 200 years is forged out of war, is forged out of, you know, the century of imperialist occupation and intervention um, of war in, during the Civil War era. Um, and and so this 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 is why it's so central. It's not just a sort of slogan. It's, it's very much out of the experience of, of China. And so this is actually why I think um, when there's a lot of fear mongering around, oh, China's rise and it's going to just want to replace U.S. hegemony in the world and become a mil military power like the U.S. is. It's just there is no historical basis for that because China knows really well what does it mean to suffer from war, what it means to to fight for peacetime. And 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 um, and it's not actually an accident that, you know, in the last, you know, uh, like 40, 50 years. You know, you, you don't see China invading any other country. You don't see China uh, establishing military bases to the scale of 800 that the U.S. has around the world. It doesn't go and, you know, sort of um, uproot and overthrow a democratic elected governments. It, it doesn't bomb countries. And, and look at the U.S., you know, in over 250 years of existence, maybe 16 years, there hasn't been wartime. There's just fundamentally different approaches of engaging with the world, but it comes with that historical experience of having suffered greatly um, because of war and because of imperialism. And, and, and this is, I think, why it's such an emotional issue, too, uh, of sort of defending uh, uh, national sovereignty, territorial sovereignty, and also not interfering with other nations' um, a path for sovereignty. So interesting that you bring that up, because I can't tell you how many times I've heard that argument that you know because obviously the show being the empire files and i rail against the united states all the time and people respond to me frequently by saying look i hear you um and i agree with you even to a certain extent but if we were not doing this china would take our place and china would be worse at controlling the planet. So do you want to live <laughs> under the thumb of Chinese repression or do you want to live under, under the US, US empire? <laughs> and it's just such a bizarre thought experiment because it's like, I mean, as you mentioned, there's no basis or foundation in actual reality, but it's also like, wait, well, how, like, we're already so bad. You know, it's like, there's torture camps, there's like 800 military bases, wars being waged that are genocidal. Look at all the, you know, the, 
nearly 100 like coups and interferences. I mean, it's just like the list goes on and on. It's like, I don't know how you can actually compare that a country would be worse than what we've done and what we are currently doing and how you can use that to justify being this grotesque imperialist force that is constantly expanding um, and undermining the sovereignty of hundreds of millions of people around the world. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, and that like just China also has the aspirations to become a massive global military empire and occupy, you know, almost all of the countries in in the world. It's just like, uh, I think that, you know, any country looking at the U.S. over the past 20 years would be like not really wanting to emulate it. It hasn't really worked out very well for America. Well, they they point to like they they'll, you know, a lot of people will be like, no, 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 it's not militarily. Because then I'm, they'll be kind of dumbfounded when I'm like, how many bases does China have? And they're like, I don't know, 100? And I'm like, no, one in Djibouti. And they're like, oh, well, it's not it's not through the military. It's through economics. It's the insidiousness of the economic stranglehold of Africa and Latin America. And they, they've been maneuvering, you know, those shady Chinese people who've been, you know, like... Like super like weird tropes also that come out and like the shadiness that's like under the radar, like Chinese people have been like, like, um, you know, networking around the world to like basically control economics. So and I mean, I think that's it's interesting because underlying that is a fundamentally white supremacist vision, right? Like that trope <laughs> has been around that yellow scare has been around for a long time, right? In terms of like, we're always sneaky and doing the side business. And but I, I think one of the things that this is, um, <laughs> I, I don't remember, I, you must, I mean, remember the Alaska meeting last year with Blinken, Jake Sullivan, and then there was the foreign minister of China, Wang Yi and Yang Jiechi. And um and there was a, I mean, this was one of the more um, kind of big moments of sort of China standing up on and probably hasn't spoke to the U.S. like that, at least not in 40 years since, you know, the, the reestablishment of diplomatic relations, that's for sure. And one of the things was this point, right, that the U.S. does not represent the will of the majority of the countries, you know, the countries, particularly of the global south that have suffered um, the, the most consequences of, of U.S. imperialism. And so one of the challenges was that these rules, the so-called rule-based order defined by a small elite of the U.S. and its sort of lackeys uh, cannot serve as a basis for an international order. Um, and just as a side note, I think it's quite interesting because one of the main lines that he said and his hand was out there and it was like, well, very shocking for us all to see that the U.S. is not qualified to speak to China from a position of strength. Because it's also, you know, the so-called democracy of the U.S. is also judged not only by its people, what you can do for the people, but also by the, the people of the world. And that line became like a big hit here. It was like on T-shirts. Everyone had cell phone covers of <laughs> Give that. Give me one of those know? T-shirts. It yeah. sounds great. <laughs> exactly. I want that shirt. What was the line Which again? Which definitely happened 40 years ago as well. <laughs> what was the line again that was on the shirt? I basically, the U.S. is not, I cannot speak to China from a position of strength. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I want that. I want bumper that shirt. sticker, dude. I know. That's what I'm saying. I want it on a banner on my economic question. I mean, if um, I, this is why also I think we're really interested to do this Africa China podcast because that is one of the big areas of the contention right now. You know, if you ask, um, you know, and uh, average African that right now, you know, 40% of the continent doesn't have access to electricity. You know, there's an infrastructure deficit of over $100 billion a year. 
And of course, now we're every week we're seeing like the U.S. coming out with like a, a new acronym um, to sort of contest the Belt and Road Initiative, but haven't been able to actually like build anything or put a real budget to it or show to the rest of the global south that there's a kind of development project that isn't this sort of, you know, neoliberal legacy from the 80s, 90s that, you know, really uh, engulfed most of the global south countries in huge amounts uh, of debt and structural adjustment. You know, what is another path for development? What is the U.S. and its allies offering? It, it isn't doing that, you know, and for a lot of the countries that are looking towards China, it's for another option. It's for an option that's not just the U.S. unilateral, unipolar, so-called international order. So I think there's sometimes also like this arrogance about saying, oh, there's no African agency or African states can't choose the options that is best for their development that might include China um, as if, you know, they're being cheated and um, by us evil, you know, scheming, you know, yellow people or something. And that, <laughs> there's like two levels of racism and, and, and arrogance. Right, there, right. You know? That Africans have like no agency and that Chinese people are scheming to usurp their agency. Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's pretty arrogant. Yeah. And um, a lot more to go into there with the Africa relationship, which is pretty interesting. Um, but I did, uh, I hate to, to bring up something less serious but it just when we were talking about like thinking about this contradiction of um you know china's at economically and this trope about the you know that china's controls the economy secretly and all this stuff like it's it's such a funny and and there's a lot of fear-mongering about that and especially in american right-wing press but also among democrats about like you know how we're in debt to china now and all this stuff and um it, the Davos it, elite are all in bed with China. Like, yeah, a lot. it it is interesting because um, it's like the U.S. like did that, like it want it saw an advantage in moving all its production overseas. Uh, Tinks, have you ever, uh, by any chance, uh, seen the show Shark Tank? No, okay. I have. It <laughs> well, it's a uh, no. I it's in a it's in a big American show where uh, a, a group of billion a panel of billionaires sit there and lowly working class Americans get to go in front of them and pitch their or small business owners Horrible, mainly useless and pitch their business ideas to them and the sharks. Uh, are the billionaires, if they like the idea, they get into a bidding war over who is going to buy a slice of their business and invest in it. Um, it's kind of the show is actually propped up even by the U.S. government as this great example of the American dream. Like anyone can make it if you just have a good idea and creativity and ingenuity and put hard work into a business. You, too, can be on Shark Tank and get a five million dollar investment from a billionaire and then your business will take off at uh, one of the and even like the White House has hosted them at the White House to be like shark. The Shark Tank sharks are here. Like this is the American dream. Um, a funny aside to that is that like. 10% or 15% of the people who go on Shark Tank are obviously like set up to fail, like people who have really bad ideas and they just bring them on so they could be like laughed at and like kicked out of the room by the billionaires. So that's kind of sad. But anyways, the point of all this is the irony of it being this like American dream show is that anytime someone comes on with a business where they're like manufacturing something and the sharks are like, well, how much is your, how much do you sell it for and how much do you make it for? And if, there's a too big of a, not a big enough gap between that. They're like, why haven't you moved to China for production? Like what is wrong with you? And it's like, they are constantly getting scolded. This like American dream show. <laughs> Everyone gets scolded if they haven't already moved their production over to China to exploit like cheaper labor or whatever. So I don't, <laughs> I just uh, wanted to share that because it, it always struck me as so weird. 
Yeah. yeah I mean, and, and I mean, that is that's the reality. I mean, now the cost of labor is higher in China. And so there's part of the complaints, but now all the productive supply chains are, are here. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's not a good deal. It's not a good idea to start a trade war when you don't produce much anymore, you know, because you've exported your productive capacity elsewhere. Yeah, it does seem and, like there's a push and pull between the, uh, the the establishment, you know, like between factions that are like, you know, they're so they are so tied in with with their production going overseas because they were facilitators of that to try to just make, you know, huge profits. And then now the anti-communism is almost like prioritizing that. And then you just see, you know, the escalation of the trade war really kind of biting them in the ass because it's like, well, you did this. And now you're like basically like sanctioning yourself. And like, it's just like the sanctions on Russia. It's like it, it, no one can see the big picture here. Mm -hmm. And also there's other aspects linked to that, of the hypocrisies of it. And we saw it a lot with, you know, the recent COP summit, right? And, and now China is the big bad enemy in terms of global environment. You know, you want to export the production. You want China to become the, you know, manufacturer of a third of the world's goods. You want your cell phones and your, you know, um, all kinds of electronics and everything to be produced here. And you want to export the pollution that comes with it, you know. Uh, no less the fact that the industrial north has had 200 years of industrialization and the pollution that came, you know, with that, Um uh, to account for and, and that the rest of us have to suffer. And so there's also another layer of what it means to not only exploiting the labor here and also exploiting the supply chains, but also exploiting the huge amounts of air and, and water and land pollution. I want to just really quickly mention something that Kay brought up, which is like, why is this happening? <clears throat> you know, why is Taiwan worth risking a world war over? And what I thought was really interesting, Tings, is I was just covering the RIMPAC war game exercises off the coast of Oahu, and half the press there was Taiwanese. Clearly, all of it was designed to curry favor with Taiwan. You know, Congress had asked Taiwan, I think, for the second RIMPAC in a row to come. Before that, I think 2014 and 2016, China was involved before the hard Asia pivot, and then subsequently the Trump administration that disinvited China from participating in RIMPAC. And the only reason China was invited in the first place was basically to try to contain China mm-hmm. um, and prevent them from expanding in this in their own ocean, <laughs> like, you know, waters. Um, but it was really interesting, too, because even though U.S. officials told me specifically and all of their official PR about RIMPAC was like, this isn't about any country. It's all clearly designed around the inevitable quote-unquote takeover of Taiwan. And it's just so fascinating because we're talking about 25 countries here being directed by U.S. forces to do this. And it's billions of dollars, a lot of live ammunition, a lot of these mock simulations, and it's pretty provocative. I mean, especially right before Pelosi's trip. And what was interesting is we shared a couple clips, um, you know, showing U.S. trained forces like practicing invading residential neighborhoods with DPRK leaders on the wall and how just grotesque that was. You know, imagine if China was doing the same thing, like doing mock invasions of like U.S. cities and or like Los Angeles with like pictures of the founding fathers on the walls or like Biden. And, and I can't tell you how many people responded being like, oh, really? Like. 
well, what about this? And it's just like showing articles about how China does simulations about or drills over Taiwan. And it's like, well, hold on. First of all, this isn't the same thing at all. (laughs) And also the U.S., like you said, the U.S. has been using Taiwan as like a de facto military installation. So it's like, isn't that it isn't it kind of important to like prepare for whatever the U.S. could be used? It's not just like China moving in on Taiwan. It's also like the U.S. using Taiwan as a pawn to move in on China. I mean, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think one of the things is looking back, you know, ever since it's like the fall of the Soviet Union, the U.S. has gone unchallenged, you know, and uncontested as a, as a unipolar power. And, and the real um, rise of China um, in the recent years is that in the first moment, you know, both uh, economically, and we were just, you know, talking about the, you know, productive capacity and how, you know, the U.S. has really lost that ability, you know, to develop its economy. But the now China's, you know, on the heels of the U.S. economy, you know, set to perhaps surpass um, as the largest global economy, we're also looking at it's no longer just manufacturing, you know, sneakers and, and things like that. We're talking about contesting in the areas of high technology. You know, what was that whole story with 5G and the huge sanctioning and pretty much trying to destroy Huawei about, right? Because China is entering an area of high technology that I guess the U.S. had not imagined it could be contested. And so China is um, is is rising in that way. And I guess the U.S. logic has been, you know, kind of if you can't beat them rather than join them, just bomb them. You know, that seems <laughs> to be foreign policy. If you can't beat them, bomb them. Um, and I guess one of the other things is, you know, I, I think the fragility of U.S. imperialism is also rooted, you know, in the basis that it can't resolve the problems of its own people you know look at what happened with covid i mean one million deaths look at what is happening with inflation unemployment uh, homelessness um one of the things that helps boost is uh, the this you know kind of flip this narrative is warmongering and and the level of this sort of saber rattling that's happening right now is really frightening and, and and we should pay a lot of attention and i think it's really good you brought that up but what is the kind of military movement of the U.S. in relation to Taiwan, because you'll, I'm, I'm frightened to see that, you know, even, um, you know, papers like New York Times now isn't talking about, oh, maybe how to stop a nuclear war, but it's how can the U.S. win a nuclear war? That was literally one of the titles of a recent New York Times article. I mean, that's frightening. I mean, it's <laughs> there's no possibility of winning a nuclear war for the planet, for humanity. It's just a zero sum game. Yeah, that's how everyone loses happen. war. Yeah, exactly. Asshole, but I was dude. shocked. It was like a couple months ago. It's like, how can the U.S. win the nuclear war? I was like, what? This is even <laughs> like thing than I think the you know Cold War era. I don't know. It seems like there was more. So at least they're optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, they uh, they got friends with the bunkers. You know. Yeah. Right. The they billionaires are all pulse. set up for that. They're ready to go. Yeah. Well, they have Shark Tank down in the bunkers. Yeah, too. right, right, yeah. Yeah, oh. no, Shark Tank is like the epitome of like why capitalism sucks. Because it's just like all the <laughs> shit that no one needs, you know? And it's just like, dude, no one needs this shit, bro. You know, it's like it would, I would respect it. Now that you mentioned it, it and maybe I do need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just, it's so bizarre. Um, but let's move on to like some cooler stuff because, and I want to summarize this part by saying, 
the problem with all of this is that wars don't just start with bombs, right? I mean, they start, they can start accidentally and they start with climbing this escalation ladder. And that's exactly what the U.S. continues to put us on the brink of, whether it's Russia using Ukraine as a proxy battle and using every last Ukrainian life as cannon fodder to just drain Russia of resources. This kind of shit that we're doing with China is really playing with fire. And I think Xi Jinping said the same. I think he actually said that exact quote. And I don't take that lightly. You know, when the Chinese president is like literally saying like, stop, <laughs> like you're like you're going too far. Um, and I think it really is summed up well by the former prime minister of Australia, who actually, you know, we constantly hear the China threat, the China threat. What is the China threat? Well, this guy wrote it out pretty clearly. Um, he concluded in an op-ed recently that China's threat is just China's existence, you know, that the United States and its allies would cannot tolerate the existence of a state that cannot be intimidated the way that Europe and other allies can, does not follow U.S. orders, but pursues its own course. I mean, that that is the threat here. And we have to be really clear about that. No matter what your ideology is and no matter what you think about China and what you believe about China, you have to understand, really, that's the bare facts here. The U.S. has no good intentions in the world, right? And so it's pretty stark when we're looking at why these policies happen and what U.S. foreign policy is really about. Um, yeah. I just mm-hmm. want to make a point yeah. about that, just maybe wrap up this point and get into fun stuff, is that, you know, that the playing with fire, the line is that those who play with fire will get burnt, you know? And in the end, Pelosi landed, you know, there was like something like 100 million Chinese people following her flight tracker. Um, <laughs> what were know, they waiting for? <laughs> the regional leader, Tsai Ing-wen, and she left with a scratch, you know, in some ways, even on social media. I mean, it's not something to hide. I mean, around the world, they're like almost a kind of disappointment. Why didn't China do anything? You know, <laughs> did the U.S. call China's bluff? Like, did it speak strongly but act too weakly? I mean, yeah. Could the PLA have shot down her plane? Yeah. But would that have done anything good for the world? That would have launched the world into World War Three. That would have been playing into exactly the game set by the, you know, on the terms of the U.S. to provoke China. And I actually think in the end, as much as, you know, the public opinion now is so, OK, how how to kind of confront this level of assault and aggression, humiliation that the U.S. has shown by landing, you know, Pelosi's plane landing there and crossing that very firm red line. It's actually showing a kind of restraint, you know, because ultimately the goal isn't to get at Pelosi at all costs. It's about how to approach, you know, the question of national unification as an issue amongst Chinese people and and, and decided by the people on both sides, not by the provocations of the U.S. And in, in a way, I think maybe hopefully, you know, the anger of the Chinese people, you know, that voice was hopefully heard in some ways, you know, that this is not okay, this kind of recklessness, this kind of utter disregard for international law, for bilateral agreements, and for the will of people is is not okay. So, you know, glad we're not in World War III right now, but um, but this is the provocations that U.S. is. It's trying to incite a war, and we should be very clear about that. You know, Abby mentioned that there were demonstrations in Taiwan against Pelosi's visit. I also wanted to mention that there were uh, demonstrations by Chinese Americans in Nancy Pelosi's own district in San Francisco uh, condemning her trip. So just wanted to bring that up. 
Oh, great, great point. I mean, let's let's expand on your comments, Tings, because this is really important. This recent wave of xenophobia, the Asia Pivot 3.0, I mean, there's been several Asia Pivots, major wars in Asia um, on behalf of the ever not pivot? Yeah, right, like the the (laughs) never-ending perpetual (laughs) perpetual slow-motion pivot to the main. When they thought there was a moment they could just get a ton of (laughs) great cheap labor. I mean, that was their life. Yeah, right, that was the moment. Like, yeah, let's uh, be friends and just, like, move our factories here. Yeah, the huge super profits, and then they were like, ah, fuck, like, we still need to basically confront this giant communist power. Um, let's talk about this because xenophobia has really bled into every facet of society. I think it's been ratcheted up to a very extreme degree after COVID where if maybe there was a moment of solidarity, um, it immediately dissipated and instead turned to China did this. This is like an act of terrorism almost, you know, it's been pretty crazy to see. And I, and it's not just the right wing. As Mike mentioned before, this is mainstream Democrats. I even see bleeding into left circles that even people who are skeptical about U.S. intervention in Ukraine, it it should be focused on China, right, instead. Um, How has this mentality and propaganda wave, I guess, and of course the the trade war, all these other economic um, policies that have strangled and asphyxiated aspects of Chinese economy how has it affected china culturally economically and politically i mean i think one of the it's been a really important shift here in the last couple of years and um you know really with the onset of the trade war under trump and then you know intensified um during uh the covid period I would say it's a kind of national, if you can use the word of being dosed, it's like an awakening in that sense. Um, there is a consciousness that this awoken and there's a kind of almost veil being lifted, you know, like the honeymoon is over. Um, we have to remember that one of, um, and Taiwan is very much linked to this, is that when the reestablishment, the rapprochement between China, China and U.S. in 1972, when Nixon came to visit, um, that opened up a, you know, a, a, a period of economic uh, reform and uh, opening up to the world where, you know, China needed to develop its economic productive forces quickly and then also invite or have these kind of, you know, factories come over and then, you know, um, lift the economic floor for the vast majority of the people. And huge gains were made. I mean, 850 million people were taken out of extreme poverty in the last 40 years. But that aside, that came with a kind of, you know, a honeymoon period culturally. You know, U.S. has now gone from an imperialist power to, you know, one of the best allies or friends in that sense. Um, but what we're seeing now um, in this recent pivot is this veil being lifted. And, and, and you'll see this in various ways, like especially amongst the, the young people. I would say the generation born after the 90s doesn't look towards, you know, the U.S. as the ideal. I mean, that comes with the the contradictions within U.S. society, you know, looking at the rates of poverty, looking at, you know, the state of just infrastructure or uh, looking at racism and a variety of aspects that shows that, wow, this U.S. democracy isn't all that it's cracked up to be. But then this young generation has also grown into uh, grown up in a China that has been relatively strong, has relatively been relatively prosperous. And now comes, you know, the full force of sort of the U.S. 
war machinery, you know, whether it's through the media, it's through, you know, real, you know, military yeah, maneuvers or the whole, you know, pa- you know, the whole menu of hybrid war options are being displayed to the Chinese people. This is really awakening people and be like, wow, U.S. is an imperialist force. Like imperialism is back in the lexicon of young people. Uh, that hasn't been around for 40 years. Um, and you'll see this in a variety of things. Like you turn on the TV and, you know, popular TV series that are super well produced now. Like the, you know, I remember 20 years ago when I was growing up, like everyone looked to Hong Kong series, myself included, obviously from Hong Kong. But now, you know, no one watches, not even Hong Kong people watch Hong Kong series. They watch mainland series because they're great. But you look at the themes. It's, you know, it's about um, uh, you'll see the themes around, you know, Korean War coming back into the language as part of, you know, this this recovery of, of history of U.S. imperialism in the region. Um, you'll see, you know, uh, programs around, like, poverty alleviation, um, really nice dramas, you know, tearjerkers, and they're funny, and all that kind of thing that's really around a national project and, and, and national policies. And, and you'll see young people, like, you know, like I said with the joke with the with the cell phone covers, it's not a joke. It's like people are really feeling that that sense of, you know, cultural pride and a sense of that, oh, we're not what, we're not weak like we used to be. We won't just, you know, kowtow to anyone who comes through and, you know, wants to wave their sabers at us or land their planes. And, you know, d- despite um, that defying, you know, all international sense of law and, and sort of order. So anyway, that's a long roundabout way of talking about it. But we can go more into some of the cool films and series because I love that stuff. Yeah, no, that's cool. I, I know that I I heard a lot about this film, The Battle of Lake Changjin, uh, which mm-hmm. is about the Korean War, which you know China came to the aid of uh, Korea during that you know just really terrible war imposed by the United States. I think it's uh, four or five million Korean dead uh, by U.S. bombs, um, mostly civilian. So it's that's a pretty huge number. But anyways, you know, this and film... Almost mm-hmm. 200,000 Chinese volunteer soldiers died yes. as well. Yes. And so this film, which depicts a battle between China and the U.S., is like the biggest, highest ever grossing film ever in China, I guess, at least since I last heard. I don't know if... Uh, Avengers or something has come blown out of the water. And that's like going against also Hollywood films. Like there's there's Hollywood films in China, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's obviously, it, it's not just, it, there's obviously like a cultural moment happening where that may not have been as popular as you were saying 40 years ago, but but for some reason now it's, it's coming back into kind of popular consciousness. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a really important point, and I've been following a lot of around the movies because we know that Hollywood is really one of the arms around cultural imperialism that is so, so strong. I mean, this is what shapes the hearts and minds of people all around the world um, and feeds, you know, this idea of the American dream and everything else uh, and even justifies, you know, um, like look at Top Gun, you know, what does that justify? It's, it's romanticizing uh, and justifying imperialist intervention by the U.S. Um, Air Force. So that being said, it's interesting to see, you know, I remember I was looking into this about 20 years ago, early 2000, China couldn't produce a hundred films that um, could have a, have like a, I think something like a million dollars in, in box office. It's like nothing. Now, last year was this film, $200 billion uh, and the largest grossing Chinese film of all time. 
Um, the, over the last six years, the top uh, blockbusters in China were all domestic films. They all took the top from, you know, Avengers or whatever Hollywood films, Marvels, everything like that, which is really fascinating to see. And and last year, all top 10 films of the, the biggest hits were all Chinese films. Wow. That's a huge blow in some ways to one arm of the kind of uh, the cultural wing of, of U.S. influence. And this is very much part of, you know, the de-idealization of U.S. culture that is happening, particularly among the younger generation, like I mentioned, and also a kind of, you know, um, uh, the domestic uh, development of the cultural capacity and, and, and you know, just the film quality and also the topics that respond to, you know, the national moment and what people want to watch. And I think it's fascinating. I mean, they're not all just like films about like, oh, let's let's like fight and kill U.S. soldiers. Like last <laughs> year's top film was a called Hi Mom. It was a like a mother daughter film um, by this comedian who was trying to you know basically goes back in time into the eighties and meets her mom. It's like a lovely film. I mean, so it's not always like we're not that obsessed with the U.S. either. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but it's pretty cool when you have three hours of film where it's like you're killing U.S. soldiers. <laughs> well, um, I mean, under those circumstances, yeah, I, I mean, I, it's I'm uh, anti-war. I'm just saying, like, it's like never been done before. I've just never. No, seen it's pretty. Film. No, it is. It is pretty. Um, I mean, it was a significant heroic, heroic you know? intervention by China for sure. The I best mean, scene, not to like, there's not a spoiler at all. Um, is that there was? It was like I think it was a Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and the, all the U.S. troops, like, they've already been demoralized because they were going to go home for Thanksgiving, and they didn't, and they were going to go home for Christmas, and then they didn't. And it was, like, this massive, like, huge, like, feast, like, really hedonistic feast of, like, turkeys and everything in the middle of the war zone. And then, like, in comparison was, like, these Chinese soldiers that, like, had nothing, right? Like, they had, like, a few pistols or something. Not pistols, but, like, very, very badly armed and very badly clothed um, Chinese soldiers, you like passing around frozen potatoes. And of course, like it's highly dramatized, but I thought that was, you know, quite a nice sort of anti-imperialist moment uh, without the violence of killing people. Quick dosed story. People didn't know there was uh, several dozen uh, American soldiers who were captured in the Korean War, who at the end of the war decided to uh, defect to China rather than be repatriated to the United States because they ended up becoming pro communist and pro-China and pro-Korea. I think that was part of why MK Ultra was um, facilitated and why um, Gottlieb actually justified the initiation of the MK Ultra mind control methodology because he couldn't believe that the soldiers mm -hmm. would willingly do that on their own. He actually what? thought that they were like mind controlled by China. What? <laughs> yeah, no. That... They weren't 5G towers but then. <laughs> I don't know. We have maybe it's the potatoes. <laughs> They're just that good. Um, well, of course, critics will say the CCP makes everyone see these films, read these materials, and everyone is just a drone being indoctrinated into the worshiping of the state. Um, but I, I want you to comment on that because it's just, you know, it's obviously ridiculous. But also um, going along with that. You said something interesting yesterday to me. You said that young people are reading Mao again. And the reason that this is so striking is because people tend to think that everyone grows up reading Mao. Like that you like have to read all the literature. You have to be the good communist 
participant in society, right? Like everyone has to fall in line with the party and all of that and read everything and know all the, all the texts. Um, but it's just funny. That's like that actually, it wasn't really cool. And then now people are like, you know what, we're going to like pick this up again, like on our own accord. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, this is also why it's just like, there's so little access to the information. Sometimes, you know, this idea of like 1.4 million drones is just so, I find it really hysterical because it's like how, I mean, I don't, billion. I, I guess it's like, it's 1.4 billion, billion people. Drones. It's like a lot of people, you know, it's like <laughs> a sixth of the world population. Like try doing that. Just try. I don't know like what method you would have, but it's just impossible. Like these are 1.4 human beings that think and have ideas and have dreams and have complaints like any other human being, you know? And it's like, that's bizarre. Just as like, a, just a human level. It's like, what the hell? It's a lot of people. Um, and so to think that there isn't a huge amount of sort of dissent, disagreement, uh, just diversity is bizarre. But anyways, back to, I think, that point about, you know, young people reading Mao again, it is interesting because it's part of, it was almost one of the ideological trade-offs, you know, like in, in many ways, I didn't do my education here in mainland, but, you know, I talked to a lot of friends who grew up in the 80s and uh, even maybe 90s, you know, you might read more in history books about, you know, like Roosevelt or, you know, U.S. history than you would necessarily read about Mao. You know, it's what? not it's not like a like there's this red education that everyone is subject to. But there was also like, you know, an opening up to learning about the U.S. and and, and with a real focus on the global north, you know. And you can have criticism of that as well. And and, and that that created a kind of depolitization depolitization uh, of the general population uh, for in, in a certain way. And I think in this moment, there's a, the fact that people are kind of going back to that and sort of reviving that. And, and last year, you know, protracted war was one of the most read texts is because of the historical situation we're living now. You know, there is a reconnection to be, hey, you know, we've kind of lived this before. You know, there's a lot of... Um, and this is what I mean by like imperialism is coming back into the language. It's like, oh, wait, this this idea of being semi-colonized or being dominated by foreign forces or foreign intervention is not something new. And people are going back into the recent history to, to study and, and to learn, to understand or interpret it, uh, what we're living right now. Um, and so that, I think, is pretty fascinating to see. I think it's just be too naive to think that, you know, it's just what the CPC hands down and you can watch. Like there is such a vibrant world of social media here. And just because people can't access it, it's almost like too bad people can't go on Weibo or other social media or think that Twitter is the end all and be all um, of, of like a world of ideas and exchange. Right. And going back to like, it's not quite the kind of necessarily popular opinion, but one of the reasons we wanted to do Chinese Voices as one of the projects of Dong China is just to bring a cup, some of the ideas, you know, they're not all academics, but some of them are just like kind of public opinion leaders and to say, okay, what are some of the debates happening around um, of the kind of essential questions of our time? And it's not just about for Chinese people, right? There are questions that I think have relevance for, for people anywhere. Right. I mean, it's totally cartoonish to think that a country of 1.4 billion, billion people are all, you know, this one note um, under the thumb of this strict ideology. I mean, first of all, I think it's important to note that um, 
you know, a lot of hundreds of millions of people are members of the Communist Party themselves, like neighbors, friends, family, co-workers, like uh, it's it's a big participatory force. It's not just um, a top down, you know, institution that's directed at you from these shadowy elites living like in walled off fortresses. It's like something that's actually um, a little bit different than I think Americans think of it, especially just absurd binary that we think, you know, of capitalism and communism, especially because there are elements of like this hybrid system. Um, Mm -hmm. But also, I I forget even where I was going with that. But yeah, no, it's also just like you said, I mean, the, the fact that they're obviously you don't have to be a member of the Communist Party. You could just be living your life there. Um, you know, I, I, we don't need to sugarcoat that there's, you know, maybe not as free, you're not as free to like have, you know, you can't be a member of like another party. You know, there is a one party system, but you don't have to be a part of that system. Right. Like, so I guess just explore those angles. Yeah. I mean, uh, fun fact, um, the Chinese Communist Party is 95 million people as per the last. Okay. Wow. Um, so if it was a country, it would be the 16th most populous country in the world. So pretty huge. Um, but of course, like I mean, compared to 1.4 billion, it's a small number. But I think one of the things that is useful to point out is like, uh, obviously the party runs the government and, and the party has, you know, something like 5 million, you know, grassroots organizations or organizations of all types, you know, youth, women, you know, at the grassroots level in the communities. And and this is what we really saw activated during uh, the COVID um, period, right? Like, um, especially in the community and neighborhood organizations. These are party-run organizations. Just as a side note, um, technically there are t- eight parties in China, um, but of course the CPC is the ruling party. Um, so there are people members of the seven other parties, probably in some low millions, but not, not, not huge. Um, that being said, so yes, people feel the party and. Actually, know, could you, like, what are those, what are those other yeah, parties? Could you say a little bit more? Uh, about some those? of the, I mean, actually one of them, one of the parties represents Taiwan. Um, mm-hmm. I actually don't know the whole list of them, but there is a kind of consultative um, body where those parties engage in and and happens um, every year in the kind of two sessions, um, big meeting uh, and in a space for discussion is a more forms a consultative body. um, So other parties aren't banned, even if they're they're like, there are technically parties, but you know, officially there's one party that rules. Mm -hmm. So of course this is the ruling party. You're going to interact with the party because the party runs the government. Um, So one of the things I think what's, really interesting is you know in the view of like oh the chinese the chinese party is really like invasive in your daily life i guess you can have a couple interpretations like i lived here uh during the recent outbreak in shanghai you know i was in lockdown for a couple of months and you get to interact with the party because you rely on the government structures that are led by the party um for your life, you know, like that's just kind of bizarre to think you would live in a country and like the party isn't present. Then the state is just absent. It's not doing its job, you know? <laughs> and so, and I think the thing is in a lot of places, maybe in the US, it's like the state is so absent that you wouldn't even expect um, maybe war want 
any kind of engagement in your life. But then when you have a pandemic, who's there to to deal with it? Who's there to go into the communities to make sure that elders are getting like vaccinated or that, you know, if someone is actually sick, is someone getting their medications is like someone's kid, like these, who administers that if not the state? And of course that's the party led. And so when I was um, in uh, lockdown in Shanghai, it was, my main point of contact was with the neighborhood groups, which we call Juehui. Um, and so any kind of real information, like there was a lot of what we use WeChat, it's kind of like a WhatsApp plus, you know, much more sophisticated than WhatsApp, but um, <laughs> to get information from the building, from the community, uh, what are, you know, the latest sort of regulations about what's happening, what's the situation of the outbreak, when are we going to get tested? Because, of course, we got free testing, PCR testing daily, pretty much daily. Um, you know, when will government deliveries of food come? Like all of that was organized, obviously, by the party organization at the neighborhood level. And so you really see that part of the state like active when and I think for me, my first real experience was during COVID. And for a lot of people, it was and, and saw, saw, saw the kind of mobilization in action. Right. Right. I mean, I think one of the most striking examples of just this dichotomy between just complete absence of the state and then a state apparatus that is highly functional and um, people could say is overbearing, which I I want to throw mm-hmm. at you too. But like, I think one of the most bizarre things that I saw was like in the height of the pandemic when thousands of people were still dying every day, I saw like a rave in Wuhan like going on remember remember those photos it was just like it was like Lollapalooza, like on gra- ground zero and i was like wait well, a minute a, this yeah, is there's been raves here uh, the in covid hot zones but uh no, no, no. i mean that was the, not a covid hot no zone yeah no it was like covid nobody free had rave. COVID. it was nobody just got super COVID. bizarre to wrap your mind around i was that like life wait had gone a back minute. to normal yeah so no life had continued and i know obviously there's been waves and i want to bring this to you because of course people will say look yeah, there was a million deaths here. This is the cost of freedom, baby. This is, you know, we are rugged. We are defined by our rugged individualism. We do not want the state to give us anything that includes leaving us out to die with no health care. Um, but also, I think there's two factors here that come into play that people will just reflexively come back with, which is, okay, so let's say China did contain COVID pretty well, did mitigate their deaths way more than the U.S. One, I've heard constantly that it's hidden, right? Because this overbearing Chinese control of the media, there's this huge censorship campaign to hide the true numbers. You know, we all heard those accounts of like that there was mass graves that they were hiding, like burning bodies, like all that shit. All that shit is totally fake. But I think the the more true aspect is that you know, this comes at a cost of what Americans are not used to, which is that there is um, a, a, a pretty high element of control in terms of the tracking and tracing, the lockdowns um, and all of that. And I, I have heard from people that have been in China since, you know, that actually have praised the initial response from the government that it said, you know, it did get a little bit out of control later on that, um, you know, you could be like in a five block radius and there was someone who got COVID and then all of a sudden you're like in two week lockdown within this huge neighborhood or something like that. So I'm not sure what your experience has been like in Shanghai and how how you've experienced like riding those waves since the initial break. 
Yeah. I mean, I think I'm not going to sugarcoat, you know, like I think I lost account at day 70 during the <laughs> lockdown in Shanghai. Um, it was intense. It was intense, you know, and, but I, I kind of went into it thinking a few things and obviously I mean, the city is the size of a country. It's like 25 million people. So I'm not going to say my experiences is um, representative of everyone's. Um, and of course, prior to that, living in Shanghai was almost two years of pretty normal life. Obviously, you have to take PCR tests when you travel or, you know, wear a mask in, in public transportation. But there was actually no real fear or, um, you know, mechanisms around COVID. So I think that shocked two years down the line and then seeing what happens was a bit rough as well for a lot of people. Um, and and of course, I think you know, the Shanghai specific experience is, is interesting because yes, we have a zero COVID policy nationwide, but the implementation in the city is actually different. Like it, this is also one of the myths around like, oh, there's this like central government that can control everything. I mean, it's a really big country. How you govern it is quite decentralized and in, in, in the regional levels, right? So Shanghai's experience was very different from like another comparable size city like Shenzhen, which pretty much took a week of a intense lockdown and went back to normal within a couple of weeks because they acted quite quickly. Shanghai was a different experience. And there was a lot of, I think, criticisms about how it handled it in terms of it was slow to react. It was doing this like part, you know, little little bits and pieces. And then so when it kind of blew over, really blew over. But but um where was I trying to go with that? Oh, yeah. So what helped me really understand why at this moment, like zero COVID can't, I don't think is a forever policy. No one wants to close the borders and have this restrictions like this. But what is fundamentally added? Fundamentally, the, the, the reasoning is because of protecting lives. You know, recently, the, the Nature Journal I released a study, a scientific journal, um, uh, that if China had just gets rid of zero COVID like tomorrow and lets Omicron spread, it would be nearly 1.6 million deaths in three months. Like that's a huge number. That is, I think for anyone who's like, I don't know who loves human beings would not accept, you know, and, but there's a couple of reasons for it. And one is because um, even though the country has gone through like 90% vaccination rates, um, the number is, drastically lower for elders. And in a city like Shanghai, where, you know, a quarter of the population is above 60, that was really the main question. So when I was sitting in lockdown, I was also reminding myself, like, okay, who is this for? It's for the most vulnerable population. Like, we're all kind of collectively, in a way, suffering or bearing the responsibility to protect the most vulnerable who are not yet adequately vaccinated. So that was in my mind, I especially was thinking about like the elder, like the grandmas in my building. I was like, okay, it's for you, grandma. You know, <laughs> also Chinese um, people are, are very like respecting of elders. So there's also that. And there's also another aspect too, right? Because like, and it helps us remember that China is a, still a developing country. Like there's many areas that are still, you know, needs huge improvement. Like the healthcare system is not amazing, you know, like, um, there was a, a calculation that the number of ICU beds is something like, you know, a seventh of what the U.S. has. And the U.S. already had a huge amount of problems um, during COVID. Like, it just does not have the capacity to deal with letting an outbreak go that far. So, yes, 
it's cultural in the sense there isn't, you know, China, Chinese people aren't driven by a rugged individualism like this, my freedom to get COVID, my freedom to die. And it's a much more collectivist culture, but it's also some like really just scientific things about what it would mean to sort of like collectively just like let it go and make it an individual choice to get COVID or not uh, would mean on a social societal level. I mean, it'd be huge consequences. Um, and, and China's not going to adopt a 1 million dead COVID policy. You know, that, what is, you know, we're putting those next to each other, like a zero COVID or 100 million dead COVID policy. Do we have to like individually sort of suffer or go through some tough moments and maybe sometimes it feels too much? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely a different mentality than here. I'll tell you that much. Freedom um, to give other people COVID is the mentality. Right. You're worried about freedom or getting it yourself. It is kind of fascinating that the rest of the world has just, not the rest of the world, but a lot of Western countries have just been like, okay, this is endemic and we're just going to let it rip. And it's just with us forever now. Um, it is going to be interesting to see how that plays out as restrictions lift more and more with travel and stuff like that. You mentioned something interesting um, earlier when we were talking things before this conversation, actually, just about like this kind of dichotomous nature of, you know, because this this does play into COVID too. The distrust in institutions with Americans, um, there is extreme cynicism, rightfully so. I mean, like, look at what our government has done to lie over and over and over again to the population, what we've done to our minority population, the prison population, dragging us into endless wars, not giving us even crumbs at the table, um, using all of the money to subjugate other people around the world. It's a pretty uh, dystopian landscape, especially when you are positing as the world's arbiter of morality and human rights and democratic values and stuff like that. It's kind of a slap in the face to anyone who's paying attention. This translates into, you know, people trusting the media at ex lowest in the history of polls, <laughs> trusting the government, um, the lowest in the history of polls. I mean, Biden's support is now at Trump's lowest. Um, it's just getting worse and worse. And I, I think this has translated to vaccine hesitancy and a lot of other skepticism surrounding anything goodwilled that might happen. Um, you know, that might be posed by government agencies, which I think does, it's a whole other problem, right? So when you contrast this with China, it it, it seems, and, and I'm not talking about state media sources. I mean, you told me that there's like mainstream sources that actually back up that Chinese people do have a higher optimism about their government, about the future it, it just seems like America is sinking lower and lower into this kind of destitution and despair and just poverty just continues to rise. I mean, every year, millions more people are living paycheck to paycheck, which means if there's something that happens, you are completely fucked. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point. Um, back to the kind of, I'll use the COVID example in China. I was talking to some friends who are Shanghainese about, you know, some of the um, complaints they had about how the government handled uh, the lockdown here and everything like that. And it was interesting to say why they were, you know, complaining upset. It wasn't necessarily, oh, you know, like, I want my freedom in that kind of term of like the sort of individualism that you mentioned. 
But it was actually, oh, there's a disappointment that the government wasn't as present or wasn't as efficient or didn't care or didn't respond quickly enough to the needs of the people. There is an expectation of the, 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 the party being present in life, you know, and they just didn't deliver as much. And I thought that was really interesting to say about how does the general population see the party and see its capacity to lead and govern. And so the study that you mentioned is one amongst others, but the main one that, that I, I um, kind of went into more was from Harvard. It came out last year. Um, and they did a really big study, and I don't even know how, but it was impressive. From 2003 to 2016, they entered about, uh, interviewed about 30,000 people in China uh, across all regions, uh, from the villages to the cities, to look at how they view the government and, and the public support. And they found that uh, nationwide, the popular support of, of the, the party was at 93%, and it has been steadily growing through the years that, that they were looking at. Say that again. 93%. <laughs> this is from Harvard. 93% support the Communist support. Party. And this is what's so funny sometimes about, like, if, you know, Western corporate media, it's like, oh, the people will revolt and, you know, overthrow their government at any time. It's like ripe for that. It's just like so far from reality. Like the people love the party because they've demonstrated that they can, you know, eradicate extreme poverty. They can crack down on the worst parts of corruption, which had was endemic across all levels. It's not a hidden secret. You know, that was a big part of what President Xi has been working on last 10 years is like, you know, the famous line about getting not only the fleas, but the tigers. Um, so, but yeah, but you're it referring also means to- like. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, finish. Yeah, I mean, there's the uh, like when you mentioned the opening up of China in the past and that how that kind of changed ideologically and culturally, the op- opening up in many ways to U.S. ideas and culture in China, uh, that that led to actually an extreme amount of corruption within the Communist Party. And, and there's a, a lot of members that cashed in and actually significant swaths of the Communist Party. And that uh, this new era, this kind of new era that you're talking about in the broader population of a more left wing uh, ideology and getting back to to Maoism and and all of that that that's also reflected in the party too since 2013 with uh, Xi Jinping coming in and doing like pretty massive like purges and of finding the the corrupt officials and and getting them out people that profited off of business deals and stuff like that and so that's obviously uh, I think maybe too much to get into but maybe if you want to give a, just one quick comment about that but the uh, the other thing that you mentioned that you alluded to a, a earlier in the show is the the ability to eliminate extreme poverty and it, it, like you just kind of said the number like 850 million people lifted out of extreme poverty and it, it, it just kind of like is a number but then when you really think about what that means and what extreme poverty looked like and the short amount of time that it happened it's really like perhaps one of the most like monumental feats like in the world um you know the the world bank likes to uh tout that since 1980 there's been a 35 percent drop in extreme poverty in the global population if you exclude china from those numbers it's only a 15% drop in extreme poverty in the global population. So the more than double the amount of extreme poverty overall in the world that has dropped, it is prime, it is singularly people in China. Uh, and so I think I just wanted to not just let that point pass that, you know, there's so many things, of course, that you can look at and criticize and, and all of that. But, 
you know, that single, pro- and that's, this is an ongoing project. I mean, you mentioned China's still developing. Its, its revolution was in 1949. It was not that long ago. And prior to 1949, the country was severely, severely underdeveloped, like, like, you know, lan- using gas lanterns, you know, in 1950. Uh, and, and so in, in like its, its most developed areas. So just, I think that context, Americans may not really have that, that that there's this huge project happening that is lifting China out of a really dark, many centuries long period, and that there's some really massive, significant human accomplishments that are coming along with that. Yeah, I want to just touch on a couple of points there. Really important. I mean, just to give a sense of what China was like in 1949, of course, this has to do with a lot of the you know, colonial looting that happened in the century prior, um, is that the, the average life expectancy, which is a important metrics, not just because the World Bank uses it or whatever, but it is like because it, it encapsulates things like health, you know, access to education, you know, question of gender. A lot of things are embodied into the question of life expectancy. But in 1949, the average life expectancy was 35 in China. In 35 years old, that's day, younger than yeah. I am. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. I oh, I, my my birthday's in a few days. I will should be dead in a few days. That's morbid to think about. Um, but uh, U.S. was sixty eight, and why I think this comparison is interesting because we just published about this, I think, in a couple issues ago, is that because of COVID, U.S. actually experienced the largest decline in life expectancy since World War II um, last year. And, and and China has been steadily increasing, right? Like even during the Mao period in the first 30 years, the average life expectancy doubled and doubled to nearly 70 within like a 20 year lifespan. So like just to get a sense of like what that means, because I know I throw out a lot of numbers and sometimes I'm not giving it space to like digest. It means that for every year that like someone lived, they gained an extra year of life. That's what happened in the first like 20, 30 years after the Chinese revolution. So that has continued on in this period of economic reform. And we've seen the last 40 years. What's interesting is just this last year, China is the first, for the first time has surpassed us in life expectancy. Holy shit. I mean, that's something to think about. Like, what does that mean in the 70 years? What does it mean for the U S people, you know? Uh, and in this particular moment, you know, in the, the richest country and the largest economy in the world, it's, it's quite quite shocking on on just that metrics alone. But I can maybe go into a little bit more about the poverty question um, because I had the opportunity last year to go down to Guizhou province, which is one of the historically poorest uh, um, regions of China, uh, to visit some of the areas um, and some of the kind of last regions that were um, uh, lifted out of poverty in the most recent program, which is called the Targeted Poverty Alleviation Period, which is the last 10 years. And it was really fascinating. I mean, we ended up publishing um, an in-depth study, and if your listeners are interested to check it out later, it's on the tricontinental.org's website. Um, and it's a comprehensive look, and we talked to lots of people, you know, people who lifted themselves out of poverty, people who were in poverty, people who were not. And, and, and what was really striking was the presence of of the party and how that um, at the grassroots level, at the community level, um, and how that was a huge part of seeing um, this 
improvement or this increase in trust in the in in the party. Um, just to give you one example, and it's it's impressive, is that the party sent three million members um, to the countryside to live for years, and and usually it's about like one party member working with five families, like and you live and work there, you know all the daily, you know, anyone who's been a, like a community organizer or done any grassroots work like that, that's really it. It's like, you really are going to the base and doing your community work. Um, you know, you know, if like someone's kid is not going to school and you go over to the house, you try to talk to the kid to convince them to go back to school. Someone's like aunt lost a job. You're there to figure out a solution. It's that kind of level of detail into the lives. And, and this was a big part of sort of, um, this last phase of the poverty alleviation program to go to the areas where that, you know, broader economic growth didn't reach, you know, didn't reach some of the more remote areas, um, the most impoverished areas, you know. Um, and I think that that is an inc incredible historical uh, story for, I think, humanity. And um, so, yeah, I'm glad you raised that point. And if anyone wants to check out that um that publication we did, it's it's online, free, in multiple languages. Tings, I want to get to calls. There's a lot of callers on the line. Thank you guys so much for staying with us. I do want to wrap with one more point. Um, but first, can you plug your podcast again? Some people were saying that they, uh, they didn't hear you clearly before. Sure. It's called The Crane, like the bird and the machine, The Crane. <laughs> Uh, Africa, China podcast. It's on all the podcasting platforms. Great. So, you know, this whole podcast has been really informative and basically just kind of encouraging people to open their minds and to remain curious, you know, about this huge so-called adversary that we constantly are peddled fear and warmongering about. Um, but it it doesn't mean that, you know, China doesn't have flaws or that there aren't things to criticize about it. It's just that that's what we only hear, essentially. We only hear the criticisms of the censorship, the control, and, you know, things like that, things. And so I think a big difference between our cultures is that, you know, Americans think that they're free. Um, we think that we have free speech. Um, really, I think in the age of social media, we're learning more and more to those who are paying attention. Everything is, is pretty heavily curated for us. But there is something that I am curious about other than, you know, how much people are really allowed to speak their mind online or access information freely is what is the state of actual like protests against the government? Are you allowed to go out there and protest at will? So what's interesting, I, I guess most recently there was a big series of protests that, you know, some of your listeners might have heard about when um, in Hunan, when several banks were closed suddenly and a lot of people's money was frozen. And, and now, you know, the government is coming in to sort of look into possible fraud uh, and of these banks that have been offering, you know, above rate interests and things like that. And that was actually a protest that got a lot of visibility. And I would say probably, especially 10 years ago, there was um, um, uh, in a different moment when I think the kind of neoliberal elements, you know, uh, in, in, within China had really grown. Um, there was a lot of protests, you know, happening, whether it's about factories or, or land issues or a variety of things. So it's it's a large country protest 
do happen, but not in the scale or not into the extent that we understand, you know, the role of social movements to be in a non-socialist society. Um, and I think one of the other things in terms of one area where there is, I know that I think in the West, there's a sense that like everything just gets shut down on China's social media. Um, of course there is. I mean, there is, there is like control of social media. This is not, not hidden at all. You know, uh, we sometimes joke with, with people. It's like you're trying to send a message and then there's sometimes these sort of like trigger words. Um, and you know, your message doesn't go through because you, you know, triggered the trigger words. Um, but at the same time, I think that's not to say that the social media space is not a real space for debate and, 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 and discussion. Like a lot of policy and a lot of like government action gets heavily criticized or heavily challenged. And oftentimes you will see the government taking that seriously and responding to it in different ways. There is pushback and that's real. And, and there are different ways, it just looks different. You know, it's not the every four years going to the ballot box as your way of voicing. It's actually multiple ways. Um, I'll give one example as a more pop reference. Uh, there's an annual show that happens on TV. And it's basically, it's like the opposite of Shark Tank, I guess, the way you describe it. <laughs> it's like, it's basically where people get to go and like vote for like, the, usually there's like a top series, I don't know, maybe like 10 companies that get like publicly shamed on national television <laughs> or like cheating amazing. or like sometimes last year there was one about like, you know, companies that are like uh, uh, capturing personal information, like cameras and stuff like that, that they, that the customers in the stores have not consented to. And like, that's like, that's an area of public debate. You couldn't think an unimaginable to kind of cont contest private corporate power that way, you know? So it's just like such a different society in that sense. But it's, I, I guess I would just encourage people to think that there are different forms of sort of contesting or challenging or raising concerns um, because you need to. And, uh, 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 you know, respond to the public opinion. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the will or the support of the people, you know. Um, and you would literally be seeing tanks all day long on the streets in order to control and suppress the people. And that's not the case. Just not the case. And it's probably one of the lesser, you know, militarized places in terms of visible in your daily life than than most places I've been to in the world. And there are quite a lot of strikes in China. Is that right? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. We're going to get to some calls. What's one of the trigger words? Can you tell us? <laughs> well, maybe we will come to you. I mean, you never know. That's <laughs> Zoom will get cut oh, off. Oh, yeah. You know, so you don't, you don't know, know until it happens. Be. Oh, that's a trip. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We're going to get to the line. Callers, you know the drill. Take yourself off of mute. If you can't figure it out, there's a button on the bottom. If you didn't update your app, and if you did update your app, it is not hard to figure out. Joshua, where are you calling from? And thanks for calling. Uh, I'm calling from West Virginia. Uh, thank you, Abby and Mike. Glad to be on. You have an amazing guest tonight, learning a lot about China. Uh, you guys brought up so many amazing topics regarding China and U.S. foreign policy. There's so much to get into. I just have at least one question uh, for your guest. Uh, the way I see it, the U.S. empire has two major factions today and how they view China. You have one that's been dominant for several decades, which is sort of the neoliberal faction. Their perspective is to use China like a factory for their corporate overlords 
and for China to know their place where you could stay a middle-income country and don't rise, don't be independent. And then you have this rise with Trump where they see China as a complete global threat and they want to confront China, hence the, the tariffs and more confrontation. And now since Trump won and was defeated by Biden, now we see Biden and a lot of the neoliberal faction moving towards that. Hence, you have Nancy Pelosi going over there and almost taunting China to shoot at her. So I guess I just want to get the guests' perspective and y'all's perspective on, especially Tang's, on what is the Chinese version of this in terms of the factions that the government in China has and how they view the U.S. and uh, basically uh, how they want to confront these uh, different factions. Yeah, it's a it's a big question. I mean, I think a little bit of what I had said earlier in terms of like a newfound uh, uh, confidence uh, in terms of for the first time, oh, suffering this kind of level of aggression from the U.S. might look differently than it did in the 1950s and now because China's objectively in all measures uh, a much stronger country, you know, second largest mm-hmm. economy, uh, technologically, uh, socially in various sectors, uh, you have, you know, and this levels of the high technology and, and, and beyond, you know, or we're going to the dark side of the moon. That is not possible. So how to respond to the U.S. aggression now today looks quite different. And I would say there is a very strong sense of this is this is the moment to not stand down and, and to not let um, sort of uh, the just kind of roll over and, and take it as you would. And at the other end, it's also a transition, right? A uh, big part of the uh, government focus is now in developing its high technology sectors. You know, it's it's in a transition towards, well, you say, a, a modern socialist society, which is, you know, moving from the kind of lower um, rungs of the production cycle and, 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 and entering a different stage of development. And there's a lot of interest in that and there's a lot of pride in that. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question directly, but I would say those are kind of the broader um, Chinese views on on both the camps that you mentioned. Okay. And one last thing. You mentioned that young people are starting to read Mao again. Uh, do you see a sort of renaissance of more Marxist thinking and leftist approaches in China? For example, I wonder what their views are on with Chinese rising wealth and income inequality. Yes, they have dramatically reduced poverty. In fact, three out of every four people in the world that have left uh, poverty globally have been Chinese. But I wonder if this rise of um, renaissance with Maoism would come to confrontation with China's uh, growing wealth inequality. Absolutely. I think this is basically it's a the look at inequality right now. It's framed under, you know, what's called, you know, common prosperity now. But it's it's the logical um, next step, because obviously eradicating extreme poverty is not the end goal. Right. It's just one of the basic steps of like developing a society to a moderately dignified way for most people. But now we're looking at relative poverty, looking at huge amounts of inequality. Um, not only between, you know, the rich and poor within cities, but it's between regions. 
um, you know, the eastern part of the country is way more developed, way wealthier than the center and western regions. And that has to do with, you know, how regions were prioritized for developing to service, um, you know, this manufacturing sector, manufacturing production for the rest of the world. Um, but at the same time, sort of the pace that China grew at. So right now, that's the biggest question. And we've seen a lot of interesting things, and we've covered a lot of it in the last year um, around, for example, um, what is the sort of crackdown on the big tech and the big monopolies? And that's really linked to this question of inequality around some of the excesses of the private enterprises of um, capital and what that has caused, I think, in in a kind of... um, uh, unevenness of the development in China. So that's the number one agenda right now is recognizing that the inequality that has grown with economic progress is, is central. Thanks, Joshua. That was a really insightful call. Great to hear from you. Shelley, you're next on the line. Where are you calling from? Hey, I'm calling from Arkansas, and I am so happy to be talking to uh, Abby, Mike, and Tings. Um, been, a, been a big fan of you, Tings. Um Really, really love Dongjing News. So um, I have I have two questions. I'll make them really, really fast. So I I'm a Western leftist, um, and there's there's a lot of issues that I kind of come up against with Western leftists. And I think my biggest complaint is what I would diagnose as social chauvinism, and that has to do with every single time the Western left sits there and talks about like, oh, we need a revolution, we need changes. And then if you look to any other type of country, then those countries are immediately debased as not doing socialism right. And I I, I would like to hear at least some amount of explanation as to why that's wrong, because I think that it's I, I think that it's incredibly wrong to just immediately write off all of these other countries as being authoritarian dictatorships, all those other types of things. And um, how uh, impactful that that viewpoint is on um, debilitating the Western left. Yeah, I think this is comes. Thanks for your question. And, and it's so nice to know that people follow them. Um, but um yeah, I think this is a long history, right? And, and in terms of the Western chauvinism, and it's not a thing of now. I think it's a thing that the Western left has to confront at some point or another. Um, even when we're looking at, like, I don't know, like, um, let's, okay. Basically, where have we actually seen, you know, socialist revolutions take place? You know, they haven't been in the imperial court. Those didn't actually work out as, you know, maybe even Marx had written and thought it would um, it happened in the quote unquote backwards countries of the global south, you know, and mostly non industrialized societies, there were peasant societies, and took a very different path. And so, from the get go, you know, whether it's a Cuba or a Vietnam or China, uh, in more recent experiences, um, there was no right socialist path to go on, there wasn't a handbook. Um, because there were no socialist revolutions that had taken place before. And plus, added to that, um, not coming from the industrial societies, is that people, that the countries like China, like I was, you know, mentioning it, and Mike mentioned about what was the state of hundreds of years of colonial, you know, plunder and the underdevelopment of the country. Like, how do you, how do you build a country 
from so little. You know, in 1949, not only was the average person living 35 years, like China couldn't produce even a single car. Like we didn't have the knowledge to do that. And of course, there were huge early phases, like the kind of early social spirit under Mao, um, you know, land reform, huge gains socially about women, education, literacy, huge, like all the bases that we, um, you know, for the success of today of China, or at least the be- the incredible pace it's been able to grow uh, with its contradictions, of course, um, was based on that early period. But then there was, there was a feeling that, oh, with opening up, with this like re-entering of the capitalist element, because the capitalist class had essentially been like, you know, decimated. There was no more during that period. Was like somehow a betrayal of a socialist path. And I think a lot of the Western left and the left in the world really saw it as that. It's like, wow, um, you made the big compromise with the US and then also betrayed the path of socialism. But it was also a recognition that look, China was still highly underdeveloped. I mean, we talked about 850 million people living in extreme poverty that were lifted. That's incredible. But it means that there were 850 million people living in extreme poverty, even at the beginning of the reform period. So the thing is, I guess, in a way, how do we address the chauvinism is that, you know, there needs to be a kind of right for developing countries, countries of the South, to be able to choose a development path, like some are socialist, some are not, without necessarily the view that, the, you know, we, we can't catch up in our own ways. And I would say just by the nature of how, um, you know, the, the government runs, how the social society runs, is there kind of a mixed economy? Are there capitalist elements? Yeah, but do they control power? Do they like run the state? They don't. So I think in that sense, the path of socialism is a much longer one than maybe sometimes Western leftists are ready or patient enough to wait for. Um, Of course, you know, neither Marx or Lenin or anyone else wrote about how long the stage of transition around socialism would take and what path it would look like, but it's a lot longer, I think, than um, than than we might imagine. It's not just from the day you seize power and then there we have it, socialism. Yeah, I I, I tend to totally agree. Before I ask my next question, Abby and Mike, do you do you want to add anything? Nope. Okay. Uh, so the, then my next question is is that um, you know the the ruling class in the United States. Joe Biden, all these other people keep trying to talk about this conversation about the uh, difference between autocracy versus democracy. And I I uh, keep going back to Frederick Engels essay on authority that clearly delineates that any ruling class or government that is in power has extreme authority over the population that it rules. And so I kind of have a tendency to fundamentally reject the fact that um, America is like this unique free place. And I don't think that that's really emphasized enough on the left in, in like the comparison about, well, do you really live in a free state and how it is that we can explain that to people and make them understand that um, every like every government that has power to enact what the people want does have authority 
to enact what it is that people want. And most of the time, what people want is greater equality, greater social services, jobs, economic equality. And how is it that we can best message that? And then I will, I'll take my leave. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem, one of the problems with the liberal uh, democracy, you know, under like an electoral framework is kind of a reduction of what maybe we think of democracy could to be and could be. And actually, one of the things, um, Mike, when you said something, it made me think about this. There's this like video that this, I don't know much about them, but there's this group of people who do online videos called Asia Asian Boss. And they always go around to different places around you know, Asian cities and interview people. And they interviewed, and I would actually recommend checking it out, was like people around China about do they think they live in a democratic society? Obviously, it's just random street interviews, but it gives a nice sense of how that is interpreted and sort of roundabout way to answer your question. Is that I think a lot of people feel like they live in a democracy in the sense of like, are their views you know, being represented? Is their interest being served? Uh, is life gradually improving? Is, you know, life, um, are most people living a relatively dignified life, you know, are they have access to education, healthcare, that kind of thing. You know, the, the real measures, I think, of what it means to live in a democracy. And back to kind of the public support, I think that's not a small number or a small aspect to shrug at, you know, it's, it's, it, that is in a way a measure of, of whether or not the people are being represented by their government. And and I guess there is a maybe another aspect of chauvinism that there's only one model of society that could exist that would be like a template for the whole world. You know, like China's a complex society. It has 5,000 years of history. Like to think that that kind of framework is just going to be like copy and pasted to another society. It's just another arrogance as well. Shelly, uh, thank you so much. Hi. For the call. It was really insightful. I wanted to just add one quick comment about your first question. It no, especially I, I irks me when I hear people talk about places like Venezuela and Cuba, um, just because I've been to both of those places and spent extensive time there. And it's also like a lot of these countries, especially in the global south, we will we would never know what their systems would look like without the boot of the U.S. completely asphyxiating their ability to grow as socialist projects. So it's like impossible to even discern or like really critique. And so that's why this weird third way and middle road that uh, some people take is super frustrating because it's just like, bro, you can't really leverage any critique with like crippling U.S. sanctions and an embargo on Cuba about like what they're doing. So, yeah. Thanks, Shelly, for your call. Uh, and from now, just so we can get to the rest of our callers, I'm going to have to uh, please try to keep your question short. When you're okay. done with your question, I'm going to uh, get the next caller ready to go on the line. So I'm, I'm not booting you off, but that's just how I'm going to be able to roll through the rest so we can okay. hear from everybody. So, Shelly, welcome to the show. Uh-huh. Where are you going from? I'll be as fast as I can. No, first, I, I wanted to say how good it is to hear that because sometimes when they try to counter the, the criticism that exists, the anti-China propaganda that exists everywhere, anti-Venezuela too, they try to paint it as a perfect society and it kind of uh, doesn't come as, as real because there's no perfect society and no perfect government. And it's very, very good to to hear that. Um, two things were... Well, I was going to tell you here, we have um, 
an exact example here, uh, Chinese, the, the Americans are not letting us or trying to not allow us and it came a few days ago, just uh, a new, the news uh, to allow um, investment from China to prosper and no Chinese is asking us not to let any other country invest in, in our things. So uh, that's that's to what you said at the beginning. We are have here in the South. We have very clear who the imperialists are, and of course there is a fear of another big country with big militarism, but a, a, a really more conscious one. My my question, uh, first of all, is has to do with the the South China Sea, and we got tired of listening for a long time about China and Filipinas and and how this connect to the to the to Taiwan and the other thing was if uh, maybe you can shed some light of uh, uh, I heard a journalist and he just said that um this, that he said that it's the same war Russia um, against Ukraine you say USA against China Kosovo Serbia is United States entering in recession with inflation and now remembering that there is a faster way out of it. Thank you, Sally, for your question. I'll, I'll leave the, the, the U.S. maybe part for, for Mike and Abby to respond better to. Um, I mean, one of the things around the militarization, and we're going to have to keep, the, you know, the last thing, so, so. kind of closely watching what's going to happen. I mean, with the Pelosi visit, um, uh, the, the Chinese government is highly peeved as well as the Chinese people. Um, and in some ways, some of the rules of the game have shifted, you know. Um, one of the things that we've seen is that, you know, starting yesterday till to Sunday, there are um, some military exercises that the Chinese government has announced it's doing um, that are basically um, trying to show that the Chinese PLA is is present, it's there. Um uh, and in some ways, it's crossed that sort of what was once known as a sort of a neutral line uh, in the Taiwan Straits and very much instigated after the Pelosi visit. Um, I think one of the things around, you know, the uh, fear mongering around Chinese presence in the South China Sea is, I, I, I mean, this is an audio program, so not a visual one, so I can't pull up an image. But if you ever can just like Google an image of, you know, U.S. military operations and bases around the South China Sea, and you will see that the look, you know, what is actually happening is just in an image in terms of the real containment strategy in the region. Um, and I think we, when we mentioned around what is Taiwan's historical role as pretty much a, a, a U.S. military base, you know, a big base to control the region is that you just have to see what the U.S. military um, presence is. And the thing is, China's posture militarily, aside from that one base in Djibouti, which is really um, one focused on a lot of piracy issues, especially what the EU is looking at. But anyways, that aside, has been a posture around defensive. Um, because when you have that amount of, of, of U.S., uh, military forces surrounding you uh, on all sides, you might want to just prepare and defend, um, prepare to defend. And I think that's a big uh, difference. But maybe I'll leave Mike and, and Abby to answer about the, the kind of U.S. inflation and recession question. Ooh, man, I 
I already talked too much, so I'm not even going to jump in there. I think you gave a great uh, answer to the topic at hand. Next on the line, we have Carolina. Where are you calling from? You are still muted. You got five seconds to get off mute before I got to boot you. Can you hear me? Carolina, Carolina, how do you pronounce your name? This is Carolina boy. And, uh, yeah, I'm calling from North Carolina. Sorry, it- Oh, um, had cool. a problem there with your button. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Um, anyways, yeah, thank you. So, uh, first of all, really quick before my question, uh, Abby, I I just like to say it's a pleasure to speak with you. Um, I've admired your work over the years, and uh, as someone who grew up in you know rural Southern America, uh, you know, going to public schools, I was really indoctrinated with essentially Christian nationalist neocon propaganda, and it was the work of voices like yours and uh, Chomsky and others in independent progressive media that you know helped me to you know put things in better perspective and shape my beliefs so um thank you for that but um super awesome thanks yeah uh so my my question though for for things uh, this has all been really interesting and i'm not sure if you spoke about this uh earlier in the call but i, I was curious if you could um help us better understand uh some of china's uh projects in africa and i, I know that you know obviously the state department and the Western media in general is going to have their own reasons for like trying to say that this is uh, like some reason for concern to us. But, uh, you know, I've, I've heard like some, you know, Pan-African uh, leaders and just other activists that like want to, you know, keep uh, Africa like strong and independent, uh, saying that this is something people need to pay attention to. And so I wasn't sure if there's uh, anything um, unusual about like China's investments and what they're trying to do in Africa. No, thanks for the question. Um Actually, I'm going to pitch um, the tomorrow the the uh, podcast episode that the two hosts Mika and Amadeus are putting out the, on the crane that I had mentioned is focusing specifically on the question of debt and and this sort of debt trap myth. So you might want to check it out because it's very linked to sort of how to understand and we're trying to kind of collectively unpack um, that. Um, I think one of the um, issues for uh, regions like Africa is that there's a you know, not unlike I think China um, very recently is a question of underdevelopment. Um, also, another I guess fun fact is in 1949, China was the 11th poorest country in terms of GDP per capita, and it was only behind eight African countries and two Asian countries. So it was extremely poor country. So I mean, there's a shared history in terms of understanding how you know the underdevelopment historically has has led to, you know, extreme rates of poverty and, and a variety of things. So in Africa itself, there is a big question of infrastructural development. And this is to do with from roads to ports to like access to electricity and, and internet, right? I had mentioned, you know, there's an over $100 billion deficit in infrastructure um, uh, budgeting every year for the continent, uh, 40% of the continent doesn't have access to electricity. So this is a really urgent question. And, and after the national liberation period, you know, um, and uh, especially in, you know, starting in the 80s and 90s, and what um, was offered, I think, from um, Western-led uh, institutions, be it, you know, the World Bank or the IMF, was that development would come at, huge costs, not only financial costs, but also political and social costs. And that was in that period of the structural adjustment programs where you basically have to privatize the hell out of your your country in order to get uh, funding. 
And what I think is important and uh, around this debt trap tra- 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 uh, debt trap myth is that China is offering a different alternative for possible development path, and it doesn't come with those political strings. You know, I had mentioned earlier in the program why. Um, non-interference is so key, like as a principle for China because of its own historical experience, but also how it relates to the rest of the world. And this will be true and consistent um, across um, all the countries that engages with, you know. And of course, this is, you know, framed under the new kind of project that that developed in 2013, which is the Belt and Road Initiative, right? And and that um, was where a lot of African countries, I think there's about 40 or 40 plus countries now that have signed on into some projects or another, but it's also in other regions of the global south and Latin America, it's about 21 countries that have signed on. But um, this is really looking at a, a new perhaps model for development um, that I think regions and countries should have an option to choose, you know. But if you actually look into the details of a lot of the the actual um, um, programs and and funding structures, you'll see that um, the interest rates are lower. There's much more room to renegotiate uh, than uh, in terms of the payments. There's a lot of debt servicing um, uh, suspensions, especially that happened in COVID in the last couple of years. And for sure, there's none of these strings attached around restructuring of your local economy or the privatization of your local economy um, and, and, and resources, really. So anyways, this is one of the reasons we wanted to come up with this um, podcast is really to dive into more of these questions. And, and, and Mika and Amadeus are way more eloquent than I am. So please check it out. But thanks for your question. Yeah, something else really quick that I learned from uh, Eugene Perrier, who does a lot of great reporting on Africa, is that it's not just that the deals themselves, you know, and finally having an alternative to the IMF and World Bank for Development, it's not just the deals themselves that are uh, less imposing uh, and you know, just better deals overall, but that when uh, when an African country defaults on a loan from the IMF, there are very severe repercussions, and then you're just in this debt prison. But basically, he was saying that so far, when uh, countries default on loans to China, there's basically, like, no action or no repercussions. Um, but anyways, let's move on to our next caller. Thomas, where are you calling hey, from? thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm calling from uh, Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for waiting so long in the end of the queue. Oh, no, no, it's a pleasure. Um, I guess my question is, um, in what way does sort of like the rise of China as a global power and sort of the decline of the U.S. pose the possibility of like international socialist revolution, um, particularly in the in the core, because obviously that's Marx thought that was necessary. Um, And if it does. What do you mean by socialism? Um, sorry, I missed the question. Is the question that uh, how does it help or how does it pose a, a problem for? No, how does it like socialism. the idea would be, I guess, the idea of a part of the left anti-imperialist uh, group would say that while well, the rise of China and the third world makes socialism more likely to occur. Um, and so I guess my, like as a, like global international revolution. So my question is how, if that's what you believe, like how so? And then also what does socialism mean to you? If that's okay. what you're, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Uh, I hope so. No, <laughs> no, I won't use my magical thinking. I mean, one of the things I think was an interesting moment. Um, and I mean, I guess as good revolutionaries, we also always have to have, what is it? Pessim of the pessimism of the will, but optimism of the spirit or something like that. I think Gramsci said, but um, is that we're seeing a new moment happening. And with, you know, we talked a lot about that, you know, compromise um, when U.S. and China reestablished diplomatic relations. And one of the things was a kind of a separation or a kind of detachment withdrawal of China from um, really leftist or, or, or socialist uh, oriented, you know, um, countries or projects or movements, right? It was a different moment than the national liberation era where China was very connected with a lot of liberation struggles around the world. And that was part of the compromise. And I mean, right now, what we've been seeing, and it's interesting, I think um, President Xi, if you kind of follow his speeches and his his orientation, and even looking at what the Belt and Road Initiative is, it's not a, a, a project to build socialism around the world, it's not a political project, but it's certainly an orientation towards the global south. And at, with this political conjuncture and the heightening of regressions and the clarity around what, you know, the U.S., um, the direction of U.S. imperialism with China as its main strategic target, is there is a kind of realignment uh, or hope for a realignment of Global South? You know, when I had mentioned that Alaska meeting, you know, there was a, you know, a voice of saying, oh, China is also not only speaking for China, but speaking for for many countries that have been oppressed under U.S. imperialism or U.S. led imperialism. And we can't sort of see even some of these sort of regional developments uh, and, and multilateral and multipolar arrangements being part of this reconfiguration. And I think a lot of people have been bringing up um, the idea of a new non-alignment. Obviously, China isn't the Soviet Union. We're not in these two poles in that same way, but uh, at least the possibility to not align with the U.S. project as the unchallenged and contested um, unipolar force in the world. Um, and 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 I think there has been lots of different indications to say that China is moving more towards back to the south, I think towards a more progressive and overtly sort of anti-imperialist position. And I think that's an opportunity, hopefully, um, for for left projects around the world. Uh, and of course, with um, the, you know, the, the fight for socialism. And in some ways, I think we've been following quite a lot to um, the relations between uh, uh, China and Cuba. Uh, Cuba has been a pretty strategic partner in a variety of um, uh, cooperation. You know, they actually recently just came out with a new vaccine together. I mean, that's incredible uh, against COVID um, around the Belt and Road Initiative, but also on a political aspect, right? Um, thinking back last year when there was the group of friends, um, the group of friends to, to defend the U UN constitution was a lot of these, you know, the countries of the excluded, the countries that have been um, uh, been uh, sanctioned, like Abby, you mentioned, Venezuela, Cuba, we have Iran, we have a whole kind of world configuration that is happening today uh, that hopefully China uh, can help uh, build and, and has, you know, presents a strong enough pull to help um, uh, for push forward more progressive and, and, and to the extent socialist projects around the world. But, but is that socialism, right? Is socialism just recentering power from America to the global south? Like, is that what Marx had in mind? 
when he was talking about socialism or even Lenin, right? Is it? Yeah, is it, I, yeah. Like, I, like I would well, say I like, not at all, right? You know, yeah. Yeah. That's just sort of a reformulation of capitalism, right? It's a capitalism with a new person in charge or a different power balance, but capitalism nonetheless, right? And it also, I think, crucially, at no point was like the actual, like the core capitalist countries mentioned, right? Which Marx thought was necessary, right? Revolution in those, right? We talk about, oh yeah, well, let's support Cuba or Venezuela, which great, but we're again not like the horizon of this movement, if we call it that, is much, much, much lower than that of Marx or Lenin, right? The ambitions are yeah. very low. I, would, I, I totally understand your point. I mean, I think the thing is, there's no like, socialism doesn't come without the mobilization of forces to push socialism to, and that's going to be the work of people in the imperial core to mobilize and organize to be able to bring that to reality. I think for people in the global South, like the challenges are different. I mean, to be able to, like when you think about, I don't know, a country like Brazil, you know, um, uh, which hopefully, you know, Lula will come back into elections um, and win the elections in October and we're following closely about what this will mean for a new pink tide. But of course, pink tide is not a red tide. It's not a socialist project. But even for places like in Latin America, where there's been uh, an attempt to do something slightly more progressive and slightly, um, you know, off the path of being the backyard or front yard or whatever yard of the U.S., that has been derailed. And we see that very clearly in the last few years with what happened with Brazil, with the coup, with lawfare, with the um, the removal of Dilma with the imprisonment of Lula. I mean, even a uh, pink tide, even, um, uh, even that will, uh, under, uh, the U S you know, overlord U S imperialism. And so for that reason, I don't think we should shirk at, um, what is the importance of a global new configuration and of a stronger global South that has a possibility of a national project and regional integration to have a chance to contest U.S. empire, because first and foremost, that is our biggest enemy. Without that, you can't just construct socialism out of, you know, it, it exists within the context of that. So I guess my main pushback is that there's work on various fronts, like people in the Imperial Corps got to get organized and mobilized and push for that. And the people in the Global South have to, you know, you know, build um, more bridges together to be able to con- contest how U.S. imperialism um, plays out in our region. Yeah, and I'll just add, I mean, I totally agree with you, Tings, and I'll just add that um, people should listen to Jody Dean and her episode that we did on Dost about neo-feudalism, because <clears throat> I think when we're looking at, you know, what did these people kind of foresee when this theory was fleshed out, and I, it's it's getting really strange, um, actually, what capitalism is morphing into, and so um, it you know, it's going to be hard to foresee going to, you know, transitioning to socialism from like a, a neo-feudal version of capitalism that we're entering into. It's kind of becoming a worse stage, actually. So it is tough, especially when anti-communism still reigns supreme as the primary religion in this country, and we still have a lot of work to do. I feel like it's just as popular as ever, you know, I mean, as we're seeing labor struggles and stuff, 
erupting all over the country. As we know, um, anti-communism is still the driving force behind the Republican Party, and also Democrats basically base their policy on not being communist and punching left. Um, and, and so there is a huge, huge problem and a huge divide, and, and it really just goes back to organizing ourselves accordingly. Yeah, and Tings, we really appreciate you staying on for so long and taking all those calls. Um, you know, and it, it's like when we were preparing for this, it, we were just realizing that, like, China is such a huge topic. I mean, current I stuff aside, the history, it's just like, it's so big. And so I'm sure there's many people who could say, oh, you didn't talk about this. You didn't talk about it. It's like, yeah, we know there's so fucking much that we would have loved to talk to you about. But, uh, you know, it couldn't be a six hour. Ep- and even a six hour episode wouldn't be able to cover it. So uh, I think that the goal of this was to, I think, number one, you know, inspire like a, a curiosity in people to learn more about China. But I think, you know, in the, on the heels of this big provocation by the U.S. and an obvious shift and, you know, Pelosi's visit was not like a rogue action. Like it was an escalation by the U.S. government. And, you know, on the heels of this uh, step of the U.S. like provoking a, a war, which nobody wants to be bad for everyone to to promote a, a friendship with the Chinese people, a respect for Chinese culture and history and uh, a kind of collective sense of saying that if the our government here in the U.S., takes any more of these actions towards uh, that we should be supporting peace at, at all costs and, and friendship <coughs> with the Chinese penis. Abby, you want to close this out? Ben, I'm so, so, so happy that you took the time to come on. I learned so much about China, about the context of Taiwan. I mean, you know, as learned and as involved in the news that I think that I am, I, you know, it really still was such a huge um, kind of foreign like concept to me you know and it's like it really takes kind of just parsing through all of this with someone who lives there who understands and reading a source like dong sheng you know i'm i'm a subscriber to dong sheng and i love reading through it and you know looking at kind of just different facts about the about the country that i'm told that i should be excited about going to war with yo so i really appreciate you coming on and can i ask a question with us and realizing that we have a lot more in common than not. I appreciate your time, everything that you do, all of your work, all of your insight. Everyone check out Dongsheng News, subscribe, um, check out the podcast The Crane on all podcast platforms. Follow Tings at T underscore Ings on Twitter. Tings, do you have an Instagram as well? Yeah, it's Tings Check. Tings check. There you go, everyone. Tings, any closing thoughts before we uh, close out the episode? No, just a lot of gratitude. It was super fun to talk with you. I know we wanted to keep it light, but it's just like so much stuff to get into. <laughs> but huge fan of both of your work. I think uh, it's great to finally connect. And hopefully we'll have another chance where I'll just bring all the cool dose stuff. Like I found out, for example, that there was an ancient forest that was found inside a sinkhole in China. Oh, like what? Those kinds of up, you know exactly so maybe one day we'll have to do a show just like the cool things okay <laughs> that aren't geopolitical we're down oh, for man. that hell yeah yeah, yeah right? we'll do a geo- geography chinese exactly. top magical forest and that discovered in a safe so lexi wait so the sinkhole just opened up and then there's like a forest under the ground yeah like ancient like what? preserved forest because it got preserved in the sinkhole all right, we're going to leave you Googling with that. Googling it. Dose. Oh, I man. I, just, you know, I just want to end with that note of, like, peace. 
Yeah. And like yeah. anti-war message, which is, wow, there also exists ancient forests and sinkholes, and we could get to know about it. There you go, <laughs> everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Tanks.